Darling, it's the Shy Life Podcast. You won't find a cast of characters like this everywhere. Hello, Paul. Delicious. This particular episode of the Shy Life is, is a little more abstract than Okay, it looks like the hairy guy is ready to record. Three, two, one. Go Shy Yeti. Oh, I hope he hasn't found out my secret. I think he has. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Shy Life Podcast with me, Paul the Shy Yeti. How are you doing? Well, I'm alright. In fact, I'm, I'm on a holiday, so um, uh, I do apologise. But um, today's episode is a bit of a, a repackaging, but it's of things you may not have heard before. Now, um, you probably heard me talk about Round the Archives, the podcast done by Andrew Trowbridge and Lisa Parker and many various guests. And I've been doing articles for them since nearly since they started. But at the start of 2020, I began to do articles with a good friend of the Charlotte podcast, Toppy Smelly. And I guess there may be listeners who may not have caught on to some of those articles. So so this episode is kind of like a repeat of um, of those. Well, not all of them, but a few of them. A few of the articles that Toppy and I did for Around the Archives back in 2020. So I'll um, run the theme music, and when I come back, I'll, I'll just introduce each of those little articles. All right, um, run the theme music. It's time for my old buddy, old pal, from across the channel, across the pond... Bob Chandler, the shy Eddie. He's not that shy. Oh, it's the shy like podcast. Yeah. All I wanted was a pie. And then I hatched out of an egg. Okay, bring the mic over. He's ready to record. It's the quiet ones you've got to watch, you know. Is it metaphorical? Is it, is it deep? Is it deep? The <laughs> boy, he's not all that shy is right. Blimey, Governor, it's the Shy Life Podcast. If you thought that was bad, just listen to this. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for it to begin. It's the Shy Life Podcast. He's positively glowing. <laughs> Hello again, listeners. So, I wasn't sure whether I should um, collect the articles that I'm going to share this time thematically or or by series, or chronologically, and, well, I think I'm going to go chronologically. So, the first time that uh, Toppy and I did an article for Around the Archives, it was episode 44, and that was released on the 12th of January 2020. And uh, I guess, sort of, our first article together sort of set our store um, as to, to the type of TV shows we'd be talking about. Uh, mainly American shows that Toppy often grew up with or which I discovered later on. Most of the articles around the archives do tend to be uh, UK shows, so yeah, I, I seem to have found my niche with Toppy. It sort of makes sense, really, for us to talk about American shows. But our first article was sort of a general look at some of the Owen Allen shows and one or two other American shows 
of the late 60s. So have a listen and I'll be back in a little while. Hello, Round the Archives people. It's me, Paul the Shayetti from the Shy Life Podcast and, and Round the Archives, of course. This time, my, um, my my little article for, for this month's episode, it's going to be a bit different. I, I'm going to be talking with a very good friend of mine who is also a podcaster. His name is Toppy Smalley, and he does a show called The Smellcast and also another show called Matinee Minutia. Um, Toppy, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I am a <laughs> fan of Round the Archives, and I've heard you, and of course, um, Lisa and Troby. Uh, and uh, I, I have found out already mm-hmm. so much about British television that I did not know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you were you, you were telling me earlier that you you started watching Samurai and Steel, so that's a yes, yes. Yeah, that's definitely. A, uh, it's nice to know that that's being viewed. Um, sort of across the across the seas because I'm not sure that was ever shown. Um, yeah, it's been a treat because I'd never heard of it. Mm. Didn't know David McCallum was, and I love David McCallum. Um, and uh, um, and it's just my kind of show. It really is my kind. I love the low budget. I just adore shows that have low budgets yeah. because because I like to see how creative they get, you know, because to do things, you had to be pretty creative if you didn't have a lot of money. And yeah. I love I love the way they, you know, like, how can we do this? Well, and somebody figures out something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I know you and I share a love of um, shows like Dark Shadows, which uh, you know, they're definitely a good example of low budget, but they doesn't stop them trying all manner uh, of weird things. <laughs> that's a perfect example of, of the inventiveness of those creators, those producers, and like being a slave to a low budget, but they, you know, they found a way to do it. I I, I just saw the, um, Paul, the uh, uh, the documentary that just came out yes, uh, that you mentioned. What what was the name of it? Um, it was called was it Master of Dark Shadows or something? Yes, yes, yes. It, although it's about Dan Curtis, it, it also becomes very much about the program itself, which is nice. Um, yeah, and um, anyways, that that I we should recommend that. At least I would recommend it. Yes, yes, you? yeah, certainly, yes. Particularly, um, I I, I um, saw that you mentioned it and that it was on Prime, and I wasn't sure whether your version of Prime is the same as ours when I was. Over joy to find it was so. yeah i don't know that it is but at least you know it That's did have it. that um, yeah. but what i was going to say is is right in one of those interviews was one of the old producers and what he said was you know we'd read the script and we'd find out what they wanted to do and we'd just like how are we going to do this <laughs> they had no idea <laughs> but they had to come up with some way to do it and they did yeah well um this time and i know you've got some ideas some articles that you'll be um submitting in future episodes but i thought we'd just have a little chat about not about one show but about some of the shows that maybe i discovered in the 90s which you sort of remember when you were very young first time around um but uh, for, for instance i was going to mention the Irwin allen series oh. which, which i know 
you're very fond of and which I discovered in the probably in the late 80s when they showed them on Channel mm. 4 in the UK. Yeah, and I'm old enough to uh, to have been sitting there as a kid in the late 60s watching when they actually aired and and uh, you know, it didn't matter what Erwin Allen he didn't he sprung out a lot of uh material in a fairly short amount of time and i watched them all <laughs> did you have a favorite because the the four i think of are um lost in space voyage to the bottom of the sea um time tunnel and land of the giants those are the four that i really think of certainly the ones i i saw yes and there were other attempts um i know a certain a couple of pilots that did not sell um and on you i wish i could tell you what they were paul because one of them is on youtube and it's utterly fascinating uh, an Irwin Allen TV show that was never picked up and they've got it on YouTube I'm sorry I can't tell you what it's called That's but okay. maybe if, if you search for Irwin Allen it'll come up but uh, sure I remember uh, I think those were the main four Paul you, you hit them yeah those are the ones that, that were on And um, I, I was kind of fascinated how they often start off quite serious, like Voice Bottom of the Sea, the first maybe the first couple of seasons, I think, and they're, they're a lot more, they're a lot more, they're a lot more serious stories, spies, and then as time goes on, the sillier plots and monsters come in, which uh, there's probably no surprise that those tend to be the eras of the shows that I like. Same with um, same with um, Lost in Space. It starts yeah. off relatively serious yeah then, quite serious and yeah. then i think i think of season two as being the season where um a lot of the monsters involve people wearing tights over their heads <laughs> well you know what we can blame that on right <laughs> you know what well it'll be obvious once i say it batman Uh, yeah. Batman was uh, okay. So first we had Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That was Irwin Allen's first, and then he started production on Lost in Space. So he had two shows running concurrently: Voyage and Lost in Space, um, which coincided with the premiere of Batman, which was, you know, breaking. Well, I don't know about breaking, but it was highly rated. Okay. And Erwin Allen said, we got to go cool here. We, we got to be like Batman. And that's, what, that's who we can blame, Paul. <laughs> we can blame Batman for Voyage and Lost in Space going camp. And, and Batman also affected the Avengers as well. With the first uh, color um, Diana Riggs season is very influenced by Batman. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I think if you, you, if you, you, a lot of the... It's face or pop arty that that season. Um, it's but, been so uh, long that I've seen episodes of the Avengers. Maybe, mm. maybe I would see that. I, I, thinking back, I certainly wouldn't, didn't know, or wouldn't have felt Batman was a mm. uh, influenced the Avengers. And, and um, of I. I think of the other Erwin Allen series, I was quite keen on Land of the Giants, and that one manages to keep a little bit more, doesn't get quite as silly as the silliest 
episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or Lost in Space. But, I mean, I, again, I, I like the silliness. So, but, but um, I think Under yeah. the Giants is is probably a little bit under underappreciated. But uh, I agree. Um, uh, it did not get quite as silly, and I and I I'm not sure I understand why because it <laughs> did it did start in production after Lost in Space, and why Irwin Allen thought. I don't know what he, but he did. He, he, it wasn't campy. It was not campy like Batman. I mean, by the by, the third season of Lost in Space, you have carrot monsters and everything. It's great. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, I, I appreciate. Look, look, I love Lost in Space. I watch all three seasons, no problem. Um, but my my favorite episodes are the first season when you know it was trying to. I mean, if you think back to those first three black and white episodes that were basically the re-edited original pilot the chariot in that sea uh, I mean that was incredible model work I mean it was well done I mean it would have looked it would have looked great on the big screen that's how good it was because Dr. Smith wasn't in the first in in that pilot was he no um, I think I have seen the the pilots at some point and yeah, it's quite a different show, really. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, Doctor Smith was thought that. Well, the the thinking was by Irwin Allen. Okay, okay. So you, we we got this family. They're all nice to each other, and he just felt like something needs to stir the pot. Um, and so Doctor Smith was invented, but he was only going to be a temporary character mm-hmm. uh, for the first season, and not even the whole season. Um, but we have Jonathan Harris to thank for basically saying, boy, I'm getting a paycheck and I want to keep getting this paycheck. And I'm going to really, he just went off script. <laughs> and it turned out that people loved it. And it, he really invented quite a character. Um, I remember him in an episode of the second season of Land of the Giants. So even though Land, um, Lost in Space was finished by that stage, um, he, he he sort of he still sort of um, was involved with Irwin Allen's TV shows in a lesser extent. He was only in one one episode of Land of the Giants. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I uh, I'd forgotten that, but but now that you mention it, I I do recall. Uh, let's see now. So Voyage lasted five seasons? Four. Four. Seasons. four. Yeah. Uh, Lost of Space 3. Three. Land of the Giants 2. two uh, yeah. And Time Tunnel. Or just the one. Yeah. Just the uh, one. I, I don't know what was, I don't know what the, what it was with Time Tunnel that meant that didn't, I think they did cover so many historical events in the season that I don't know. I, I, it was a lot more of a serious show, although I do remember there being one or two sort of lost in space type monsters turning up towards the end. But uh, <laughs> I do know that one thing that was challenging the, the writers, mm. um, 
you know, in in the scenario, not so much Voyage because that opened itself to a lot. Uh, and so did Lost in Space, but Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants. To get a script in there that fit was a real challenge, and uh, I can just. I would love to be a fly on the wall in that writer's room <laughs> and watch how they say, God, what are we going to do this week? Oh, oh. <laughs> and they're, you know, just, they're just desperate, desperate to come up with a story. <laughs> that there was ever a year when all four series were being made. I think there were certainly three uh, at the same time. I, I have a feeling that um, the first season, perhaps they had um, Voyage, Lost in Space, and Time Tunnel all being made in the same year. Land of the Giants was 68-70, so um, probably the last season of Lost in Space and maybe the last season of Voyage was being made that year. I'm not sure Voyage may already have... Because Voyage is the earliest one, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. And I do know for sure uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space overlapped. Yeah, they did. Uh, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, Paul, even, even the episode you mentioned where Dr. Smith is this living carrot, <laughs> uh, the writers said, well, the whole reason that happened was because we just didn't have a friggin' clue what to write next. They were at the end of their rope, and that episode does come at the pretty much close to yeah, the end of that yeah. third season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, um, uh, I, I wanted to briefly mention a couple of other shows. The first one being an example of a show that um, got really good re- repeat airtime in the UK in the 80s and 90s. I, I definitely saw it repeated, uh, but I don't know how how important it was at the time in the States, and that's The Invaders. Mm. Uh, I really I really used to like The Invaders. Um, it's kind of like a an alien remaking of The Fugitive, in a way, isn't it? With, the, with it being much. on the ground. And, um, yeah, the whole concept that I believe started with The Fugitive. I may be wrong. But many television shows followed this idea of following a character from situation to situation as he, for some reason, had to keep moving. You know, there were all the different kinds of reasons why each show had the character that had to keep moving. But the idea was that uh, he'd be in this town and he'd meet someone who had a problem and somehow... <laughs> Uh, yeah. that he'd help him with that or somehow they'd get involved with the uh, so-called invaders etc etc you could tell because they had a funny little finger and uh... oh that's right yeah uh so about the invaders yeah now see i have no memory of watching this as a kid all right so i i didn't know about it i mean i knew about voyage loss of space blah 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 didn't know about invaders so never came across my path and i learned about it i don't know 10 years ago for the first time think i just found it on youtube and was like wow what is 
this gem? <laughs> what have I stumbled onto? And so I watched it, and um, that's my experience of it. Uh, no memory at all. And so I got to say that, how many seasons do you think it was? It was two. Uh, the first season, I think it might have been a mid-season replacement, so there might only have been... 17 episodes or something and that's not even quite as much as a mid-season replacement but uh, then then, it, then there was a full-length season of maybe 24 plus episodes my impression then is that this must have come on and been pretty much forgotten in the u.s because well well okay for for example here's here here we go all right uh lost in space syndicated in america we saw it you know for years yeah. When, you know, you'd come home from school, that, that might be on, or it might be on every Saturday for years, uh, like Star Trek, the original series. You know, for a million years, that show was somewhere to be found. And so was Lost in Space, and to a lesser extent, Voyage, and not at all Land of the Giants or uh, Time, Tunnel. Uh, Time Tunnel. We never saw those again. I remember them because I watched their original run. Yeah. Invaders never syndicated. Because I mean, the funny it, thing is that there was even a, a like a mini series in I want to say something like 1995 with Roy Thinnis back in it. Um, really? I, yeah. Um, well, I didn't even know about that, Paul. And and um, of course he was also in that early 90s remake of Dark Shadows. He was. Um, um yeah he, he was one of the leads was, he, was he roger yes i think he was yes you know uh, i don't think i even knew that <laughs> well so much there's so much there's so, so much out there so many things that you're you can learn as a cult tv fan production starring Roy Finnis as architect David Vincent the invaders alien beings from a dying planet their destination the earth their purpose to make it their world I'm kind of surprised that something as old as the invaders that you weren't watching it until when did you say like mid 80s mid 80s and again in the early 90s that surprises me yeah I had a video by the early 90s and I was at the point where I was like keeping it nicely sort of you know in in a nice box and stuff because I because in a way I think it was a series that I remembered watching when I was perhaps 10 or something and then it was back, say, seven or eight years later. So it was almost like a mini nostalgia. It was like, oh, that, there's that show I used to watch. Uh, and, it's, and it's being shown again. So this time I'm going to better video it and keep it. Mm-hmm. The good thing about The Invaders is that in the second season, they do actually, towards about the middle, they do. he starts to meet a few other people who they all believe, they realise that, and they start to, to sort of form a little group. And, and it does have a slight change in the last sort of um, quarter of the, or third of the show. And it never resolves it, but it you can see that you know it was trying to yeah. not just stick to the same format week after week. It was trying to move on the story. Um, yeah, it did slowly develop. Uh, yeah. Who knows where they would have gone? 
and you also saw i think there's there's only like one or two episodes where you begin to see remember there being a, a good episode where one of the aliens has been hurt and he starts to change back into his his proper form and for mm. years i i thought that I, I found it quite difficult to find out which episode that was. I remembered seeing it, and I thought, did I imagine it? And no, it is, it, there, it is there, but uh, they didn't do that every week. I mean, if an alien was shot, he would glow red and vanish. But uh, mm-hmm. So I just thought of something else, Paul. Mm. Uh, so like uh, the, the Avengers, um, The Prisoner, American Television did a primetime run of those shows, okay? Mm. Uh, then there were other things that didn't show up until they were syndicated. And one of them, Paul, and boy, I watched this whenever I could find it, UFO. Oh, yeah. I also, when I think of UFO, I think of Space 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, a little bit later. but A little bit later, same, same yeah, team. Yeah, again, uh, uh, Space 1999... You know, we would not have seen in prime time, but it was syndicated, and, and like on a Saturday afternoon or something, you could find it. Um, but UFO Paul seems like it was way ahead of its time or something. But I think there was just one season. I guess it wasn't all that popular. But I remember, like, holy cow, those aliens are in a helmet filled with water or <laughs> something. I just remember being bowled over. Like this is, you know, I thought it was good stuff. I think it is one long season, but I think it might have been done in different recording blocks. And my favourite episodes are the later episodes, again, where they're trying to do different things and they're trying... And, and I, I would have said that, yeah, it, it's really kind of hitting its mark quite late on. I mean, it was you know, always always good, but some of... They, they, they had a formula and they were doing things with that formula earlier on, but then they knew they had to change the formula and then Unfortunately, it, it ended, but I yeah. couldn't see it continuing. Um, well, I I loved it. Now, here here this is just sad, Paul. Can I just say this is sad? <laughs> All right, UFO was created when it was late sixties, nineteen seventy. Yeah, yeah. All right. To me, okay. I, and I admit I haven't seen an episode of it in a million years, but to me. It, it it was sophisticated, wouldn't wouldn't you say? Yes. All right. This is the sad thing. <laughs> Years later in America, we had Buck Rogers. Mm. Years later, mm. which was insipid. I mean, okay, I I confess, mm. I'll watch Buck Rogers, but think about the sophistication of UFO. And years later on American television. Buck Rogers. What the hell? <laughs> what a difference. Yeah, and yeah. they're separated by years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think probably a lot of the the slickness of UFO came from the fact that, because that was pretty much the first live action show that Jerry Anderson did. And he, but for years, he'd been doing series like Thunderbirds mm. with the models. And, and yes. so I guess they had a certain look to a lot of his 60s shows. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that model work was you look at it today and you'd go like it's real right no they're little models (laughs) uh was space 1999 also something that he did models for um because the the models were awfully good his team yeah um um but yeah it it started off 
quite serious and then kind of went camp in the second series but because uh, um, I think the producer was the same producer who did the third season of Star Trek the original series who was often blamed for things going off the ball slightly with, with Star Trek but uh, well I, I do remember as far as Space 1999 is is they clearly uh, they clearly were trying to save the show and it probably wasn't getting good ratings i you know i guess in britain uh, but but they 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 thought they could save the show by in, uh, introducing this female alien yeah. and was she not a shapeshifter or something yeah, she well, could do something what could she yeah, do she could, she could turn into an animal or or sometimes a monster she could shapeshift basically yes okay yeah i remember that was clearly like okay spock was you know, made Star Trek. Let's get an alien in here, <laughs> and she was good. I that was an intriguing character. And of course, I'm one of those people who, not that secretly, quite openly, prefers season two of Space 1999 because um, <laughs> I like the campiness. I find the first season a little bit too serious um, mm-hmm. in a way. I, I, yeah, I find I find it doesn't quite work for me. This the the too serious side, and it goes too far the other way, but. I have to say that uh, I have not revisited that show since I was a kid, and I, I'm very curious now because I, I don't remember what you're saying. The the, tra- the you know, the, and I don't yeah. doubt you, but the transformation no, no. of from being going serious to campy, um, well, I, I just don't remember. It's just been too long for me. I'd love to see that show now. Yeah. Well, Toppy, we are running out of time, but before we go, and I I know. There are series that I know that you want to discuss in separate articles, so we won't touch those. But I, there's there's one series that um, I want to mention as being a show that I know was pretty well known in America, but I, I struggled to see it. I don't know. I guess it must have been shown at some point in the UK, but I only literally saw it about two or three years ago for the first time, having wanted to see it for ages, and that's The Wild Wild West. <laughs> oh. that, that was really difficult to, to find. I, it never, I never saw it repeated in the same time as the, the Owen Allen shows or, or The Invaders or any of those. Um, I, I don't know how often it's been shown in the UK, but I finally got to, to see it. Um, partly because it was available on on YouTube, and partly I sort of bought the box set. And, uh, and I did too. And I think even one of the sort of old gold TV stations showed it. So all around the same time, there became lots of different ways of seeing it. And um, um, I. I'm not typically a Western fan, but it's so much more than that, and, and it's, yeah. it's it's very good fun. And I still haven't seen all the episodes, but I now yeah. feel more relaxed because I can see <laughs> I can see it. Um, I was very fond of that show. Now that's a show that in its original run I did not see, but I but it was heavily syndicated and it was shown you know all the time like Gilligan's Island or Bewitched uh, on American television. It wasn't hard to find the Wild Wild West for a number of years, um, and um, I, I don't know that I saw all the episodes, but I certainly if it was on I was watching. <laughs> 
I think that's maybe a, a series that you and I can discuss on the archives together if we both got the box set at some future date. But um, yeah, um, that well, was another show. And I know we got to go, but that yeah. was another show that started out black and white, went to yes. color, and yes. maybe got a little campier too. I yeah. think, yeah, probably yeah, because yeah. of Batman. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only one, the only episodes that aren't on that box set are the later um, TV movies. At least not in my box set. But uh, <gasps> I forgot about the re. Oh wow! Early eighties, I think. Yes. Oh my God! Were they any good? I don't know. I, I I need to find another way of seeing those ones. But, I uh, totally forgot that they did a couple, at least one, maybe more reunion shows when Ross Martin was still alive. He was brilliant, I mm-hmm. think. Well, they, they were both. Rob Conrad, I don't know. He just played himself. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Ross Martin, you know, yeah. um, was, well, um, yeah, it was good. a good show if you can if you can catch it. It's definitely worth a look. But maybe we'll return. To I'll that. say and please, if you saw the movie with Will Smith, <laughs> it, it, it was a separate thing unto itself. Yeah. Pay no attention to that movie. <laughs> uh, the TV series was well, nothing like it. <laughs> no. Um, well, Toby, thank you very much for. Uh, making your debut on Round the Archives. And well, uh, this was fun, and I'm sorry I talked so much. It was no, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. what you're here for. Um, and we often talk about TV in our own rights and our own shows, don't we? So, uh, um, we have you and I have done um, TV episodes in um, Shall I podcast episodes. So, mm-hmm. yes, well, well, hopefully you'll be back soon, and maybe we'll be back together on Round the Archives. And thank you very much. And we better hand back over to uh, Lisa. All right, here's back to you, Toby and Lisa. Okay, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Actually, I think it's okay for me to say, Toppy and I have just recently done an article all about Lost in Space for episode 60 of Round the Archives, which will probably be out around the time that this episode goes out. So, uh, yeah, do check that. And, uh, well, all of the episodes. And, obviously, uh, although the previous clip was from episode 44, there were lots of other articles. So if you enjoyed that, then please do go back and listen to the the whole episode 44 there were plenty there of interest so the next time we did an article was for episode 45 of around the archives which came out on the 7th of february uh this time um sort of linked on from what we talked a little bit about back in episode 44 this time we talked about the wild wild west and uh i was just sort of getting into the show around this time having wanted to see it for years whereas Toppy had seen quite a lot of the show back in the day. So, anyway, do have a listen, and I'll be back in a bit.
Hello, Round the Archives people. It's me again, Paul. Paul Chandler, or, or Shigetti, if you prefer. Um, I, I'm back, and by popular demand, I have brought my old friend Toppy Smelly with me again. Hi, Toppy. Yay. Hi. Hi, Paul. Hey. Oh, it's good to talk to you. Well, um, do you want to tell the listeners what we're going to be talking about this time? We we did kind of talk a little bit about it when we talked about Owen Allen and stuff, but um, we, we um, thought there's more to be said, isn't there? Well, I think so. This is one of my all-time favorite television series from my ute. <laughs> and uh, it was from the uh, late 60s. And uh, started out in black and white, switched to color. It is the Wild Wild West with Robert Conrad and uh, Ross Martin in the in the leading roles. Yes, and as I was saying last time, it took me until very recently, you know, in the last two or three years, to finally see the series because if it was ever repeated on here, then I I missed it. And but I was aware of it and. I feel like I was aware of it. Nothing to do with that film we won't mention. I, I just kind of knew it was one of those cult TV shows of the 60s, and I felt like I'd seen so many um, other shows. Uh, you know, Man from Uncle I'd seen, and Star Trek, obviously, and Invaders, and Owen Allen and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But not, not the Wild Wild West. Well, I did not see it when it was originally airing, um, it was in heavy syndication here in the States mm. in the early 70s. And, and so uh, it used to be on every Saturday. or But I uh, that's how I caught it. It was in syndication, and I, I loved it. I just loved the wild, wild west. I, I, I found it interesting. I read a little thing that said that the creator of the show, Michael, Michael Garrison, he described it as James Bond on horseback um, because it was around the time when westerns were maybe not as successful, but spies were really in. That's true. Westerns were kind of slowly edging out. Now, there was Gunsmoke on TV Mm. that at the time was like the longest-running American TV show. And by God, it went right up into the early early 70s, Gunsmoke, before it stopped. So, But before, you know, in, in the early 60s, especially the 50s, American television had Westerns, 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 Westerns. And then, of course, came uh, James Bond and the Bond movies. And that really uh, made producers pay attention. Ah, spies. We have not mined that territory yet on television. And, of course, in the right around the time the Wild Wild West came out, a lot of spy TV shows came out. Men from Uncle. I spy. Yeah, that's one that I've never seen either. I don't know how often that's been shown over here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I spy. Now, don't ask me why. That was not in syndication. Mm-hmm. I never saw that show. Now, why? Why? I don't know. But it wasn't, it wasn't syndicated, or at least not in my territory. And so it it would have it was years and years later that I finally laid my eyes on a couple episodes of I Spy, and that would be with Robert Culp and uh, Bill Cosby uh, uh, in the late '60s. I Spy. 
Uh, the, other, the other thing, funny we were talking about James Bond, of course, because Michael Garrison, um, who I think he produced like Peyton Place and An Affair to Remember, Long Hot Summer, but um, he actually co-owned the rights to Ian Fleming's uh, first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, which is the kind of the one that never properly got made in the 60s. The, the comedy version got made, and it wasn't until Daniel Craig that, there was a serious version of Casino Royale, but so he actually had some sort of uh, Michael Garrison actually had some sort of proper connection with uh, the the James Bond stock. Oh, well. fascinating! I did not know that. Um, well, so there's a link right there. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's the other thing. I was looking um, before we started talking. The first season is just all over the place when it comes to producers. Um, because shall I t- shall I tell you what I've got here? I've got I'm, I haven't got this by by memory, but I think possibly because there were actually five people involved in the first um, season as far as producing, and I think to a certain extent probably influenced the type of episode. You know, they all had different ideas. Some of them wanted to be more conventional. Some of them wanted to be weirder. And so we had you had Michael Garrison who did episode one, you know, because he owned it. But the TV company they didn't want him to do a series. I don't think they thought he was experienced enough in TV because he'd done movies. Um, so then then Fred Freiberger was brought in and he did um, he did a handful of episodes, sort of earlier ones. Um, but also Collier Young, um, he did some. And then, I mean, there, there's there's lots of different reasons that I, I have. It's, if you want to know the full story, it's 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 on Wikipedia, folks. But it, it does sort of say. So I think Fred Freiberger was um, he, he sort of brought in the sort of beautiful women, women strong adversaries, sort of bizarre plot lines. He, yeah. he was responsible for that, and he also um, sort of brought in the character of Doctor Lovelace, which I'm sure we'll come back to. But um, um, but um, but he got replaced, and then someone called John Mantley was involved. Someone called Gene Gene Alcoon, who produced about five episodes, and then Michael Garrison came back right at the end. Gene hmm. uh, uh, Gene uh, Alcoon was associated with the original Star Trek series. Uh, well, you know, I don't know the story of that, but as you say, it might be there on Wikipedia. What I do know is that. There are characteristics to this show, and uh, and I really uh, like them. Now, let's just take, for instance, the um, iconic uh, theme song. Mm. Uh, when you hear that theme song, nothing else like it. When you watch the credits uh, uh, come by, it, it, they're animated. Uh, they have a which wasn't uncommon at that time. There were a lot of uh, it was something that was being done at that time, and um, uh, and uh, one of the things that I don't know I've uh, personally I've always loved is that they used the animation uh, that started the show um, at the break of every commercial. So that um, there would typically be some sort of moment where somebody was in in peril, uh, you know, many little cliffhangers, and the screen would freeze, and then 
dissolve into an illustration of the scene and then it would become part of this montage that we saw at the beginning of the show which may not make any sense to anyone <laughs> as i'm describing it but it was it was unique to the show and very much they used it from start to beginning and uh it just became this wonderful little characteristic piece of, of the show because um, unlike shows like uh, Lost in Space or even Land of the Giants uh, I'm sure there are others the, everything stays pretty much other than going to colour in season 2 the, the title sequence stays largely the same and you know, there's no big sort of change in the theme or, or the title sequence or it's, it, it's, it, it stays pretty consistent uh, in its look um, yeah, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the one thing that d- does change, there's one panel in the animated sequence where uh, a woman approaches uh, uh, James West and they embrace and they have a kiss and, and she brings up a dagger uh, while she's kissing him. And the one thing that changed... Uh, at least a couple of times is what he did to her <laughs> and uh, in the animated sequence. And at, at uh, one point she, he just uh, punches her, right? And she lands uh, ass over tea kettle. Mm. Uh, but, um, but they changed that little sequence uh, just, I guess, to amuse us. And, uh, and it, it didn't, it didn't always have that. Yeah. It's funny because I, I saw, on a, I was looking at some episodes and things today, I saw somebody was accusing, oh, look, the politically correct people have changed that, but sounds like it was not consistent in the actual series anyway. It wasn't always what was happening, it was, so it's nothing that's been done recently. It's something no. that was no, done. No, no, no. Um, I, think, I think they were just playing around. Um, I can't think of any other reason. So they had this really iconic, animated beginning they had this cute bit they would do before they went into commercial where it related to that animated beginning and then every episode um you could probably depend on uh certain things happening first of all a a femme fatale uh and uh, second of all at least one if not more group fight scenes where James West would have to fight off, you know, seven people. Almost every episode that happened. Um, and also uh, a villain, a weird villain and a weird plot, a, a MacGuffin, something that carried the plot along that really... <laughs> could have been just about anything and they came up with a whole lot of things I, I, i've seen it to sort of describe the style it's sort of western mixed with espionage and science fiction uh, and sort of what they call steampunk in a way like before it's before that was even used uh, as a sort of the mixture of the different um genres um yeah the steampunk aspect uh is is something that just sort of became recognized years and years later, but it had it. Uh, And uh, there's, you know, it's kind of, there's several episodes um, where 
it's used to good effect. Um, I remember one episode where uh, there was this submarine that was bashing ships in mm-hmm. harbors. And um, it seemed to people that it was some sort of undersea monster. But uh, <laughs> it was really uh, just the submarine. And the submarine was very steampunk. Kind of 20,000 leagues under the sea-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there were... Uh, well, like I say, the plot lines were uh, very strange and science fictiony and uh, but it's actually set I, I see that it's set it, it's supposed to be during the administration of of ulysses grant president ulysses grant from about 1869 to 77 uh, that, yeah that. something like that it was definitely after the civil war and it wasn't they didn't call it the cia because it was way before that but what yeah. but it did have a name didn't it what yeah i'm not sure that i I, I know, but I'm also, you know, I know they're sort of secret, so, secret service. The sec- maybe it was just they call it the secret service. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's the other thing is that every episode is the night of. It, it, um, yes. The title was always preceded by the night of blah, 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 blah. I think, um, I think, should, should, should we give the listeners a few examples? Shall I, shall I read a few of the, the weird titles out? Yeah, definitely. So we've got the their first episode is the Night of the Inferno. We've got the Night of the Deadly Bed, uh, the Night the Wizard Shook the Earth, um, the Night of the Casual Killer, the Night of the Glowing Corpse, the Night of the Dancing Dead, the Night of the Double Edged Knife, the, the Night of the Red, the Red Eyed Madman. So yeah, so the titles are just really you know all the way through the four seasons um, that they're. they're like the, the night of the eccentrics, the night of the golden cobra, um, they, they they draw you in. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, one of the things uh, the show kept from beginning to end was that uh, that our two heroes, Artemis Gordon and James West, were always on their private train, mm, that's right. and that's how they would uh, travel across the country, and um, and so that was their home was the the interior of this train and it was uh, uh nicely uh appointed and decorated and um and there were uh, they each had special skill sets right paul yes so artemis really not the uh, uh the per- the guy to do physical combat uh so artemis was the master of disguises and he was also clever with providing little gimmicks and um, it was it was his mind really uh, that was of value now James West Paul what was he good at fighting um, sort of being the pinup of the show <laughs> well nah, it's not coincidental I mean you know uh, he had um, uh, what he wore was less like the above the waist coat and uh, really tight breeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't help but notice it. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, he was the fighter. And, and just about every episode, you, you were guaranteed to see James West face off with about five opponents at one time. Well, I think they both got their share of the ladies. It was reasonably well-balanced, thing. <laughs> yeah. Damsel in distress is no damsel. 
she's quite a girl. Yeah, they uh, they were often in competition with uh, how they did with the ladies. Now, now um, there are like villains in in most episodes or guest stars, but there aren't that many recurring villains. Um, and the one that is recurring is mainly in the first two series because uh, was it because of ill health did he even die when the show was still running? Uh, Doctor Love, the actor that played Doctor Loveless. Yes, for whatever um, reason, he wasn't. He only did ten episodes, and they were pretty much in the first um, two seasons, I believe. Okay, uh, that very well could be. He did. He did pass away around that time, so that probably did put the kibosh on Doctor Loveless. But that Michael was Dun- Michael Dunn. Yes, he was a little person, and he he was this wonderful villain <laughs> that troubled the the two of them for many episodes and he was trippy he, uh, he was weird oh, Antoinette, I really surpassed myself this time gone beyond the realms of imagination not even the great Da Vinci with his machines that fly could have dreamed of such a destructive weapon and so tiny it fits in this little box. As pure as the driven snow. Oh, Miguelito, it's wonderful. It looks perfectly harmless. But once James West so much as inhales its aroma, he'll feel as if he's been trampled by a 20-mule team. And this time, we'll cut the infallible James West down to size. Oh, yes, Miguelito. And this time, he'll never get away from you. Ah, true. True. <laughs> in the very early episodes, he had a he had a sidekick who was played by Richard Keel, the the guy who plays Jaws in the James Bond films, and of course he's very tall and completely opposite. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was in he wasn't in all of his episodes, but he was in the first few as his sidekick. Yeah, and he'd be paired up. Uh, I remember one 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 great opening of. Uh, 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 of the uh, Wild Wild West before the uh, titles was um, this really huge woman. I mean, she was a big woman, and uh, and um, as it went along, she just started laughing, and she had a suitcase, and she set the suitcase <laughs> down on the table, uh, and and pulled out. <laughs> In the suitcase was Doctor Loveless, mm-hmm. and she lifted him up and was still laughing. Uh, it, it, it was strange. Now, I don't know, but I feel like the the people that created Wild Wild West were really looking at the UK's Avengers. Mm. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many of those shows sort of they almost fell into each other as well or they kind of influenced each like we were saying last time about Batman influencing um, the Avengers and then you couldn't you weren't too sure at the time and I sent you that clip where they were literally having a a, 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 a Zam Pow fight on the Avengers so um, so I think yeah, I think I think they were you know, everyone was trying. Was almost stealing from each other in the same way as like sixties bands, like the Beatles would hear the Beach Boys, and the Beach Boys would copy them, and they they all copied each other. That was happening on TV as well as in music. Mm-hmm. There's one way you you can take these series 
these action series from the late 60s. They all did this, all of them. Mm-hmm. There was a move that you could make when you were in combat. It was very fast, and it was a karate chop that completely incapacitated your opponent. Just one blow delivered in a karate chop way decimated your opponent. Star Trek did it. Wild Wild West did it. I Spy did it. Man from Uncle did it. All, all these shows of the late 60s, the hero would incapacitate someone with one karate blow. <laughs> yeah, they, they they even had that in the 70s, Doctor Who. With, but there's so many, like really famous people who played villains or I guess they usually were villain villains. Uh, Victor Bueno, um, JD Cannon. Um, now I remember Victor Bueno. He, he returned a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. I think he played, played different characters, but, uh, um, from, from what I, what I read, because I, I sort of seen him in quite a few things over the years. And, and, uh, yeah, as you sort of explore new series, you realize, how many different shows these actors were were in? Um, he, he's really good. Um, Les, Leslie Nielsen was um, well. He played uh, King Tut on on Batman. Yeah, Martin Landau was in an episode. Burgess Meredith. Oh, Yvonne Craig. Didn't she play Batwoman? That's is probably before before um, uh, Batgirl. Sorry, didn't she play Cat Batgirl? Mm. I think uh, so, yeah. Boris Karloff was in an episode. Wow. Uh, William Wyndham, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Ed Begley, uh, Ricardo Montalban. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, I think um, Victor Bueno was in possibly three episodes. Two two, two episodes, well, like one episode right at the start, I think he was in the pilot episode, and then he played this character called Count Manzeppi. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he was... In the show, oh, John Astin was in it from um, from the Adams family. Now, Agnes Moorhead, I know, was in an episode because um, I was watching that earlier. Uh, well, she's from Bewitched. Uh, I I, uh, I like her, but yeah, there were there were so, so many sort of well known names and probably names that oh, Kevin McCarthy, he he was he was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, yep. At, uh, so, I was watching one uh, from the first season again um, because, as I say, it took me a long time to catch up with the show or to find a source of it. It was very briefly on on YouTube. It is in its complete form every episode. But I noticed the other day that's I think they've been cracking down on things, and um, and uh, but I did see it repeated on a sort of old gold channel, and then I I bought the DVD set. But um, I was watching one from the first season called The Night of the Puppeteer, where um, they literally sort of have um, um, sort of life-size marionettes. I think I think they're actual people who are being manipulated like um, uh, like puppets. That that was um, that was quite quite creepy. Um, yeah, it had a, a very creepy feel to it. Do you have any particular ones that you that you remember that that, uh, that you particularly enjoyed the stories of? Well, I can't say that um, 
definitely every time Dr. Loveless was on, you just sort of felt like, okay, here we go. This is going to be good. I was looking at um, the the episode guide, and it said that the third season uh, sort of shifted away a bit from fantasy and more sort of, I don't know, the, the villains being more political and less outrageous. But um, I, I, when I watched them, I don't know if I really was aware of that. I, th- I thought it just kind of kept sort of being, but I guess if it, I, I think I, I didn't necessarily watch them in season order. So maybe if that was the case, then I wasn't quite so. Um, mm-hmm. If I had to guess, um, Batman was particularly outrageous mm. and it garnered a huge audience and then lost it pretty much as fast mm. as it gained it. And it could be that when they saw how fast Batman ran out of gas, they said, ooh, let's not go down the same path. And uh, and maybe they put the brakes on the camp. Yeah, because by the third season, we're talking about um, late 67 into 68, by which point Batman was finished by, by 68, wasn't it? I would have, I would have thought, or oh, near enough. Um but um, oh, I have a fact here for you. Um, there's an episode in season three, which um, it's called "The Night of the Undead," and it is the episode it says the episode is notable for featuring the most fight sequences in an episode, a grand total of seven fight sequences. <laughs> <laughs> so I know a little bit about the fight sequences in that Robert Conrad was really aware that he carried the show. He carried the series, and he took it very seriously. And he wanted the fight sequences, which were virtually in every episode, he wanted them to be good. Mm -hmm. And one way he prepared for them and was able to do them week to week was that he would have the same stuntmen every week. So all those people that that you would see gang up on um, uh, West uh, every every week, they were the same stuntmen. And and they got used to each other, and they were able to quickly choreograph a a sequence uh, week after week. And Conrad, like, was really conscious of of how important that was that um, that they be good, that they be different week to week, something might be different. And um, so it was a major part every week when they put out one of these shows, the fight sequences were like a major part of the production and they got through it because they used the same stunt people over and over. Mm. Well, I read something about in the fourth season, he hadn't, um, um, that um, that that Ross Martin had an, an, an accident um, during the filming of an episode and got a hairline fracture in his shin, and then actually missed nine episodes. And I, I'm not sure if I've seen these these late, very late ones. Um, yeah, he, he had some extra. Um, so James West sort of 
operates solo, but then he also has some different agents um, as his sidekicks to cover those other episodes, the other eight episodes. Yeah, they would write in um, some other characters to um, be in the show, and they they did a pretty good job, as I recall. I remember at least one person that partnered up uh, with Robert Conrad was a woman. Could not tell you who the actress was, but that was really different, and it it was they handled it rather comedically. In fact, well, that was mostly Ross Martin's part of the show was to bring the comedy relief. So when he was um, off of those episodes, the other people they brought in were also for comic relief. I was quite surprised to read that. Um when the show was cancelled in 69, it, it still had high ratings, but it, it apparently says it, it was cancelled um, as a concession to Congress over television violence, which um, was a problem at the time, or considered it was considered one of the examples of, of, of a show that was too violent. Um, mm. um, if that's seemed- true, it must have been a network decision. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it to to sacrifice a show like that if it was still making money, yeah. still getting ratings. Oh gosh, it, say, it says uh, that um, Ross Martin also had a heart attack during that last season as well, so he wasn't in a good way. What with the the the, frac- the hairline fracture as well. Um, yeah, and I I do remember him being written out of many episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, that may have also contributed to um, just the decision to yeah. okay, maybe yeah. we need to stop. As, as I was saying to you earlier, when I was kind of looking at clips and things before we started recording, I um, um, I, I did for the first time see some uh, footage from these two television movies, um, The Wild Wild West Revisited in yeah. May '79. I didn't realise, but they had Dr. Lovelace's, like, son, because he's Dr. Lovelace Jr., and he's okay. played by Paul Williams. <laughs> that fits so well. You know, I know uh, damn well I saw those reunion episodes. Uh, I remember virtually nothing about them, but it fits so well <laughs> that he would have been uh, in there. You know. to do with an atomic bomb and replacing the crowned heads of England with Spain and Russia with exact duplicates who are under <laughs> control. That pretty much sounds uh, like it. So the second television movie, apparently the first one was really successful and they did a second one um, with uh, Victor Bueno but I think he was playing a different character. He wasn't playing either of the characters he played before. The main villain was played by Jonathan Winters who had <laughs> been I think he'd been in the later seasons of Mork and Mindy, hadn't he? Had yes. Um, this, this this is from October 1980, um, and and it's all about um, he, um, Jonathan Winters plays a character called Professor Albert Paradine the Second, a brilliant madman who seeks world power with weapons of doom. Sounds slightly similar. I think he might be in power in your country at the moment. But there we go. <laughs> um, but, I do. Um, I do remember when those reunion episodes came around. They were like, uh, I just know 
I certainly had to see him, and I'm sure a lot of other people did too, because by that time, the Wild Wild West was sort of out of the syndication circuit, and none of us had seen it for a couple, three, four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reunion episodes came around, and it was like must, must see TV. Yeah. Part of the. Um Apparently the second one was shown in two parts, but it wasn't as popular. But I think apparently the television movies were more humorous. Um, they played more for comedy than the, the original series. But um, mm-hmm. um, there's a recurring character in both of them who I only mentioned because of his connection to Star Trek. Unfortunately, um, you may have to help me with the pronunciation. René Aubergeonois, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you almost had it, but don't ask me to pronounce it either. Anyways, he played mm-hmm. um, on uh, Deep Space Nine. He yes. was the character who was a shapeshifter. Yes, hasn't he recently died? He did just pass away, yes. yeah. Um, but yeah, he plays a recurring character called Captain Sir David Edney. So, um, oh, he's, oh, he's, well, it says he's play, he plays Colonel Sir David Edney in the second one. <laughs> He's gone from captain to colonel. I don't know. This could be wrong. Who knows? But anyway, uh, he's in both. He's in both of them anyway. But, uh, and uh, just to briefly mention, uh, like two decades later, they did a, tea, uh, a theatrical release movie, which I can give credit for maybe a couple of things. One was not a bad idea to have Will Smith uh, be James West. Mm. Uh, it worked, and he was certainly a very popular actor at that time. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, it also really, really played up the steampunk aspect of it. Um, and, of course, by that time there was CGI and they could do just about anything. And um, uh, so the uh, the visuals were interesting but really it just it just wasn't the wild wild west yeah well i think we have probably run out of time there's there's so much i mean with a series as many episodes as this i did think about about picking one or two episodes but then you don't really kind of get to talk about the different things in the series or the different um so uh but it's definitely worth a series worth checking out, particularly in the UK where I don't think it's half as well known. Um, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed finally getting to see it because it's one I definitely wanted to see for many years. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. Uh, uh, villains were weird. Uh, plots were, uh, you know, somewhat. Uh, well, intricate, but whatever. It was, if, if you think of uh, the UK's Avengers, um, they certainly, uh, style-wise, have a lot in common, uh, especially with the Mrs. Peel era episodes. And it's fun so. just seeing all the different special guests that you recognize, um, sort of turning up as Villain of the Week. And, uh... This is the end of the rainbow for the illustrious James West and Artemis Gordon. No, there'll be no pot of gold waiting for you, only a bucket of blood. 
Yeah, well, um, around the archives, listeners, we, we're going to have to go, I'm afraid. But thank you for listening. Um, do, do you want to give Do you want to give a plug to shows that you're involved in, other than other than this one, Toppy? Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, you can catch me on the Smellcast, uh, which uh, you can find at thesmellcast.com. And also, I'm involved in a uh, little movie trivia show called Matinee Minutia. And you can find that over at uh, wordpress.com And uh, that's about it. And, and, and I'm on the Shy Life podcast. And so is Toppy sometimes too. So and that's <laughs> my plug. <laughs> and I'll be here. I'll be here next month probably as well. Um, and, and actually, Toppy, you're working on you're working on your your, your debut so, solo article for Around the Archives. I coming, am coming later this year. Yes. Right, let's go. We've got to go. We've got to go and record some silliness for Shy Life Podcast. Yes, yes. Have fun, you two. Pussycat will be here to make sure that you behave yourself. Hello again. So... Following our chat on the Wild Wild West, um, I went off and did some articles for the next couple of issues with Nick, and um, the next time I recorded with Toppy was for episode 48 of Around the Archives, and this time we talked about the Twilight Zone, and this episode came out on the 4th of May 2020. Have a listen, and I'll speak to you again once this article is done. Hello, Around the Archives people. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti from the Shy Life Podcast. I'm here again with my friend Toppy Smelly from the Smellcast and Matinee Manisha. How are you doing, Toppy? I'm well, I'm well. Uh, thanks for having me back. Oh, well, no, well, thanks to Andrew and Lisa as well. Um, now, this time we're going to talk... It's kind of possibly going to be a two-part um, but a two-part chat, but we'll... we'll, we'll They'll be in different episodes, so we're going to talk about the Twilight Zone today. But I'd also like us to talk about Night Gallery another day soon. But um, we'll, we'll just take one series at a time. But, uh, All right. <laughs> so the Twilight Zone. When did you first see the Twilight Zone? Um. Oh, in the seventies, it was something that that uh, in, that channels uh, you know our three major networks. Um, during the day or late at night would play to fill in time. Um, if, if you, if you were a, a station out there and you wanted like, you know, something that would probably pull in people to watch twilight zone was a really good bet. Mm. And so I, for example, I remember one summer it was on every day at like 1230 in the afternoon and, uh, you know, it was summer, and just every day I'd be watching it. Uh, of course, it, it uh, was far ahead uh, of uh, when I was uh, even born. Um, so that's a part of, uh, you know, TV that uh, was, the first uh, before me. 
first season was 1959, and it ran for five seasons until 64. Well, um, so I mean, the whole the whole of the series was black and white, but um, I've I've bought the Blu-ray very recently, and I've been watching some season one episodes, and you know, I know you're a great a great fan of black and white TV, and I, I have to sometimes be in the mood. But with the Twilight Zone, it, it's it, it you don't notice. It just suits it, and it doesn't look. It's it's the quality so so crisp, and and um, that that even if you go if you had a problem with with black and white, which you shouldn't, um, you know, it it just it's just perfect for Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone has kind of a timeless quality, and I, I do think the black and white sort of keeps it somehow. Uh, it's timeless. Mm, but I, but I've, been, I've been watching quite a lot of old films uh, on a channel called Talking Pictures, which is over here, and I've been watching quite a lot of black and white films, but some some films from like the late 50s or even the early 60s, they, they, feel, they really do feel like, you know, like they're from their time. But I, I didn't find watching the Twilight Zone like I didn't think, oh, this is the fifties or this is the sixties. It just it it manages not to to date. Maybe, maybe some of the episodes um, will or certain sort of things about society or um, or, th- or things that you know maybe they're playing on the jukebox in a in, in an episode or whatever might date it. But um, the, the stories sort of do still feel quite sort of um, relevant and. Um, you know, they they've rarely been bettered. I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Um, although saying that, I was looking, and of course we won't be covering these revivals, but um, there there was an '80s revival which ran from '85 to '89, which I think I may have seen some episodes of, and that there was a, a revival between 2002 and three, which I don't think I saw at all. And then there's a, a third revival which think it's happening this very minute which began in 2019 so i don't know if that means that anthology shows are sort of coming back round. i know you know i know i've sort of heard people sort of say as far regarding like short stories that they used to be really popular mm-hmm. and, and you know at the time of the original twilight zone a lot of those stories were perhaps adaptions of of existing short stories, but short stories sort of maybe went out of favour a bit in uh, from the sort of eighties onwards. But uh, you know, I've always liked uh, from the writing point point of view. I I always enjoy writing short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, yeah, uh, uh, a lot of people think, oh, the the Twilight Zone invented anthology mm-hmm. storytelling, and of course it, it didn't at all. But it took advantage of of that format to uh, you know present a different, completely different story, completely different cast every time. And of course, uh, radio. You know, I, I dare say that Rod Serling was uh, certainly grew up on radio dramas, mm-hmm. and one thing radio had a lot of uh, was anthology uh, radio mm-hmm. series. Um, they had bucket loads of them. Yeah, yeah. I've been listening to sort of a few of those sorts of things myself over the autumn. I didn't even realize, you know, it existed. Um, mm-hmm. So we uh, we should talk about Rod Serling, mm. who uh, uh, I don't think the first season 
he uh, actually showed his face, but but from then on, uh, his his uh, visage was cemented with the Twilight Zone, and certainly his voice was uh, as as the opening and closing narrator of every every episode. Well, the, the weird thing the weird thing is the the Blu-ray version that I've been watching. Um, I I'm actually seeing the episodes in a way that I've never seen them before, because not only do they keep some of the adverts from the time, but you do see Rod Serling, but it's like he pops up sort of when after sort of before the titles run, um, sort of saying what's coming next week. Right. Uh, I've never seen I've never seen that on any you know any time I've seen it on TV or even earlier DVD releases. Um, so I think, uh, and I had in my head that was typical. And what may have happened is uh, for for getting in commercials, uh, it very well could be they edited that out mm, just yeah. to give a you know another minute of commercials. Yeah, and um, also uh, something I'd not seen before was that um, there was a pilot episode. Uh, which I think you you do see him in again at the start in the way that it would later become. I think then they must have sort of decided no that that, he, that didn't work and then later reversed that decision. But um, it's, it's fascinating to think that they've kept some of this all this stuff in the archives and it's perhaps only uh, emerging uh, now in this form uh, that. Uh, it could be. I mean, I've certainly never seen Twilight so well. That's not true. I mean, when I look, look at it on Netflix or whatever, that must be an unedited version. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Um, but Rod Serling uh, had uh, made his reputation prior to Twilight Zone, and uh, he was writing for a lot of live television one-hour dramas. Um, it, you know, did some really long remembered and uh, and revered um, scripts for various uh, networks and and uh, the shows so he was very well known as like mm. a you know a top top-notch writer mm. and I dare say that when CBS picked it up uh, you know I doubt they would have if Rod Serling hadn't been uh, the writer. In fact, the first looking, at, I'm looking at um, the Wikipedia page for the first season, and the first seven episodes, every single script is written by Rod Serling, including the, most of the ones that I've I've watched recently. Where is everybody? Which is well, like one of those ones where a man, a man appears and he he's the only person around. Um, one for the angels, which is. Well, it involves an angel. <laughs> uh, Mr. Denton on Doomsday and the 16mm Shrine. Um, they, they're all sort of um, episodes that, that he that he wrote. And, and it was only even, even looking at the list of episodes, when you get to, you get to a lot where, like, there's quite a, f- a few that are based on short stories by Richard Matheson, but then the teleplay is done by Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Brad Serling definitely molded the template for the show in, in, in such a way that, 
you know, he was certainly curating scripts from other writers that sort of, uh, you know, would have um, that little twist ending, um, that little bit of, uh, oh, at the end, (laughs) that the show was, was famous for. Yeah, funnily enough, I mentioned Richard Richard Matheson. By by later in season one, Richard Matheson seems to be actually writing those early ones. They're based on short stories he'd already done, which Rod Serling adapted. But uh, late later on, it it looks like Richard Matheson perhaps wrote, wrote his own um, scripts. Yeah, uh, he he was uh, he jived with what mm-hmm. Rod Serling wanted. And Rod Serling, you know, uh, this was his baby. Um, he really wanted it to work. He put everything he had into it to the point of sheer exhaustion. And so once it got established, he, he said, I I think maybe for my own health, I better start <laughs> having other people write this because he, he really did write himself uh, ragged doing a, a weekly television show of the caliber, you know, that the scripts for Twilight Zone was. So uh, more and more he, uh, you know, he relied on other writers. One of the one episodes I watched, uh, Mr. Denton on Doomsday, has Martin Landau in it, and there was a commentary that Martin Landau had recorded. So I guess, on the, even though the Blu-ray is quite a new um, release, I think some of these things probably come from previous DVD releases. Um, so, although Martin Landau was no longer with no longer with us, he'd recorded uh, commentary, and he he said because I think he I believe he was so he was in like the third episode, and I think he was in one of the very last episodes five years later, and he said that you could tell that the five years of sort of dealing with TV executives had sort of uh, really worn Rod Serling down. Um, yeah, and in fact, you'll you'll find he wrote about it often. Uh, um, I think one episode next stop will be where you know there's this uh, close up of a mouth shouting at an underling, push, push, Willoughby, mm-hmm. and uh, you know ordering him to work harder, and all all this guy, um, you know, wants to do is. Uh, get off on a train at some quiet place where he can just rest and not be so harassed. And uh, that was the theme of a lot of Rod Serling's scripts. And and the seasons of the Twilight Zone, they weren't, they weren't short by any means. The first season had 36 episodes. I think um, pretty much all of the seasons had, you know, um, season two was 29 episodes, season three, 37 Season four is weird because it was our episodes. So there was only eighteen. Mm-hmm. Season five was thirty-six again. So yeah, that's when the seasons were long. By the mid seventies, your typical hour-long drama had like twenty-three episodes a season, mm-hmm. but thirty-six episodes. Woo, woo. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's quite a quite a schedule. Yeah, I think as you say, it's sort of in because even looking at series when I did my article on Bewitched. The early seasons of which were sort of at least 32 and then by the time the season the series was coming to an end it was down to a more manageable 24 mm-hmm. although by the time they were doing those later seasons of which they probably had so few few ideas or were reusing things because they've been doing it so long so it probably wasn't an easy 24 it was probably a, oh my goodness what are we going to do to feel 24 mm-hmm. yeah um, and um 
one thing as a writer, Rod Serling, and you could see it in many of his scripts, wanted to comment on civilization, uh, human beings, uh, societies. And um, networks kind of didn't really want controversial uh, stories about those things. Um, and uh, it was hard to sell like a really good story um, that was ripe and juicy because the networks would say, well, this is too controversial. This, I, we can't, we can't write, we, we can't do this. And Rod Serling knew that in a format like this, if he just disguised it a little bit is maybe something leaning towards science fiction or fantasy that he could easily write about uh, the kinds of heavy subjects he enjoyed um, writing about. And he, he knew he'd, uh, and he did, he, he, you know, the networks like, Oh, it's a story about spaceships and outer space. Woo. well, I guess, but there's actually a very deep theme uh, that perhaps <laughs> the network's executives just went over their heads or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, moving on to season two. Now, that's the... We were talking a bit about this before uh, we started recording. Uh, this is the season that has some episodes that were recorded on videotape as part of a... Well, really, as a cost-cutting exercise... But um, there was only right. Yeah, so know, it was done on film. Uh, yes, usually. And, yeah. and then I don't some executive type, and this is exactly the type of person that Rod <laughs> Serling was not terribly fond of. Said, "Well, let's just do this. I know on video, and it'll cost us less." <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, there was only six episodes done. That oh, way. was that all? Yeah. I knew it was short-lived um, because it was just not – I mean, people weren't used to that. They were used to film, and they had, I think they got a lot of complaints, and um, they gave up on that. Luckily, one of my favorite episodes is called Eye of the Beholder, which involves a, a character having a, a, an operation on and ha having bandages around – their face for majority of the episode and you only sort of see what they look like at the end and luckily that's i don't know why that one stuck with me i think it's because it was one of those twists that really kind of affected me yeah that that was a uh grade a level twist at the yeah. end yeah. <laughs> So thank uh, goodness that one wasn't a videotape one. That one is a film one. So, because um, because it would have been a shame to have um, for, for that to have um, had that condition. But um, yeah, well, just before uh, we leave the video aspect, you know, you and I um, were I'm both fond of Dark Shadows, and of yeah. course, when Dark yeah. Shadows started out, it was black and white video. Mm. I love the quality yeah. of uh, black and white video. However. We were watching, um, well, to call it a negative would be not correct, but Dark Shadows had been saved uh, in particular by the producer, um, Dan Curtis. And I think when you're watching video, the video episodes of, of Twilight Zone, you're watching kinescopes. I don't, I, and that's why it has 
a harsh, very harsh quality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it does. It just and it looks. So I remember probably back in the nineties when I first saw um, a couple of those video episodes. I, I was kind of like, "Well, this is this is just weird." It doesn't just doesn't because it's so few episodes. It just doesn't sit. Um, yeah, and a kinescope uh, for anyone who doesn't know is just. Uh, they would, you know, have the video screen playing the video and they would wheel up a film camera and they would take a movie of the video. Mm. That, that's a kinescope. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about the Twilight Zone is I think I think a lot, a lot of times, you know, when people describe the, the Twilight Zone, they say you know, Twilight Zone is sort of sci-fi and maybe if they mention Night Gallery, they mention that that's sort of more horror, which with Night Gallery, that is pretty much all of the stories are supernatural or horror. But Twilight Zone has episodes that are far and beyond just sci-fi. I mean, there are one or two, and one of my favourites we'll come to later um, is definitely more of a horror one. So I think Twilight Zone did dip into more than just the sci-fi genre and fantasy. It was probably broader um, yeah, much, much broader. It had a good mix, um, you know, when they were curating the, what they wanted to show in a season. You know, some were very humorous. Uh, it was just all about the humor. Um, some were, you know, serious. Some were, you know, total science fiction. Um, some were melodramas. Uh, yeah, a great mix. Mm-hmm. Are there any one episodes that like you've always sort of particularly enjoyed or that stick in your yeah so many of them certainly you know the ones that most people mention um you know because they are so good um they've certainly left their impression on me like okay any episode with william shatner (laughs) and i'm there uh, you know, any episode with Burgess Meredith, I'm there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I love uh, whatever that one with Shatner where he's on the plane and there's a yeah. gremlin. Yeah, I, I love that uh, episode where they're at a diner and there's a fortune-telling machine. Mm-hmm. Love it. And uh, I love Burgess Meredith's episode where he's the guy that survives a nuclear blast and he says, oh, I have all the time in the world to read and breaks his glasses. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, we mentioned Bewitched earlier. There's an episode from uh, season three with Elizabeth Montgomery, um, which was shown in September 61. I, I believe she doesn't speak throughout the, for the whole episode. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, cause she, she, that was before she did Bewitched but she was quite well just read a, a biography about her she was quite um, well known by that stage um, I don't recall Elizabeth Munger which, uh, what was the plot of this episode, uh, episode is called Two um, she's a female a female soldier wearing a tattered uniform stumbles into a deserted city huh. Um Interesting. You know, Agnes Moorhead, of course, who was also on Bewitched, she played Samantha's mother. The episode on Twilight Zone that she was in, she also never uttered a, 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 a syllable, a recognizable syllable. 
Yeah, it says um, the episode relies heavily on the music and there's very little dialogue throughout. Um, yeah. Yeah, the um, the Agnes Moorhead episode, uh, definitely a favorite of mine. I remember when I first saw that one, it was, you know, just long after I had been watching Twilight Zone, and, and I guess I'd just never seen it, and I was really, that wowed me when I saw that one. There's a lot of, um, still lots of sort of, Stories by Richard Matheson, even in season three, and they they do a version of um, "I Sing the Body Electric" by Ray Bradbury. They still keep to the format of sort of well, twenty five minute, half an hour episodes, right? Uh, up until the end of season three, and then you get to season four, where they, and I'm still not quite sure why they they decided to do this thing of doing our episodes for that season for that season four and uh then they went back to half an hour is that what happened that's right Um, yeah i think that was uh, you know i i i i really doubt that broad serling would have said yes please i want to write (laughs) hour-long episodes again a network decision Uh, paul um I, I remember reading as famous as Twilight Zone is today, and as much as it lasted five seasons, I'm pretty sure I read that it was never particularly super highly rated. It never achieved uh, the audience in its day. Now, am I making that up, or do you recall um, anything about? This? No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I uh, I know. Uh, from that from that side, there's no, there's no sort of mention, sort of. Um, yeah, it I was one of those things that has. I mean, I I I don't. I'm not even sure when it was first shown in the UK. Whether it w- was shown, sort of in the 60s or or a lot later, or quite. It's one of those things. I'm sure someone listening would know where to to look to to get that sort of information. But mm-hmm. that, that does sort of interest me. It's like all the shows that you and I have talked, the American shows we've talked about. Uh, I, you know, when we talk about Wild Wild West, I, I, I don't actually know when it was first shown in the UK. I know Star Trek. I don't think Star Trek was even shown until about 1970 in the UK. Uh, I might be wrong, but I know it was pretty much finished or had finished by the time it was got first got shown. Um, yeah. So you would say like you were how old when you ran across Twilight Zone? Well, yes, I was. I was going to t- share my my first experiences. Um, we're talking about the mid midish nineteen eighties. Oh God! Um, yeah, well, it was show at that point. It was being. I'm sure since it's been, you know, this is was just a particular period of when it was shown. Um, I was old enough. I actually, it, I didn't have my own video. Because by the late 80s, I had my own video and I could set what I liked, what films I liked. I, they used, you used to find, I mean, there was only four channels um, in, in the UK. But, you know, I'd always look in the newspapers to see if there were any horror films or anything like that. But I think Twilight Zone was probably a little bit earlier before I had my own um, video. And I, I remember asking my mum if it was okay um, to record um twilight zone and I, I knew the name twilight zone but i didn't really know you know to me i was probably 
you know, 10, 11, 12 or something. I, I knew of it, but I didn't, it seemed very adult and very sort of, mm-hmm. I remember when I first shot, when I first saw the Avengers, um, around the same time, it was on like at nine or 10 o'clock and I, and I, I was allowed to stay up to watch it because my parents obviously remembered it and they knew it was probably okay for me to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sort of had a, an inbuilt reverence towards Twilight Zone. And um, I, I can still remember the first episode that that, that I videoed that, that first time I set the video. And we'll, we'll come to that in a moment because it was a season five episode. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I was, I was probably, um, it, it was just amongst all the different programs that were, were repeated at perhaps midnight or mm-hmm. two o'clock in the morning. And that's certainly where I discovered Night Gallery as well that was i mean when we talk about night gallery yeah, but i suppose it's okay to mention it but they they used to chop night gallery into little bits because sometimes an episode of night gallery would be may would be one story or two stories or or sort of three stories and then a little five minute one or and, and by the time i saw it they were chopping it up and just using it to fill space where they had like a five minute um, space at like three o'clock in the morning or something. So mm-hmm. it was. It was only. It wasn't until I got the DVDs with Night Gallery that I actually saw it in its proper form. But uh, yeah, um, I know we'll talk about Night Gallery some other time. But um, uh, I'm much. In fact, I know I haven't seen all the episodes of Night Gallery, and I was never compelled to watch it as I was Twilight Zone. Although I certainly saw some episodes, um, it just uh, it never. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because it was color. Maybe it was an hour long. It was. It seemed strange and never as interesting as well, the Twilight Zone. It'll make for a good discussion because, spoiler alert, I I prefer Night Gallery, <laughs> but only partly because it's horror and partly because it's that early seventies color. Um, yes, it's really. Amazing. I really love that sort of, like the fashions and the kind of garishness and the, like, you know, yeah. But we'll, yes, we'll, that's that's right up your alley. I think we'll we'll we'll, um, we'll, we'll talk about that next time. But um, yes, uh, but season, season four, this season with like fifty minute episodes, still has Richard Matheson writing a lot of the stories. Um, Odd Serling's yes. sort of writing. Yeah. I, I don't know. Just glancing at the titles, I. Don't know how many of these are, you know. If you were going to take the top ten episodes of, of Twilight Zone, I, there there is one called Printer's Devil, which is a Burgess Meredith one. I remember years ago now, I did a friend of mine let me a tape some tapes um, with season four episodes on. So I remember watching a lot of them and not really enjoying them as much. But there were one or two that did work for me and, and unfortunately I, I i couldn't tell you which ones they were from the titles but but i think it's worth watching it's worth watching because it's still the twilight zone even though it's a different oh, yeah. yeah they the t- the scripts aren't as tight because they didn't need to be they had 50 mm-hmm. minutes to fill um and um you know the, the, and to be honest uh, I'm not familiar, very familiar with the hour-long episodes because when I was watching it, it was syndicated, and I I I would gather the package that networks uh, or TV stations uh, would get was a, a half-hour slot, and I bet you the hour-long 
episodes were not in that syndicated package. Mm-hmm. And also, there was they didn't even start the, the the previous series ended sort of in like the summer of sixty two, and they didn't come back um, until the January of sixty three because it, it almost wasn't a full. Um, well, it wasn't a full season. They it just ran from January to May. Um, I, I, I almost wonder was was what was the you know, was there a hiatus with it? Whilst they tried, whilst they worked out what what was, I'm sure it's been written about, but I don't have I don't have the facts in front yeah. of me now. But uh, I don't either. I did just remember uh, uh, one of the weirdest ones uh, that was vivid, vividly burned into my memory. I don't remember the title, but it uh, takes place inside a small uh, apartment mm. that seems to be in a high rise, and it's hot. And mm. it's like it's hot because something's happening to the sun. I forget what. It's either the Earth is moving closer to the sun, yeah. or the sun is uh, going supernova or something. And it's just boiling, boiling, boiling hot. Mm. And there's stragglers that are in this apartment building. You know, who are our neighbors who are there. And for some reason, this lady hasn't left her. And she's just deliriously hot. And what a weird. That had a mood. And, and uh, I'd be so vivid. Uh, do, do, does that one ring a bell with you? It does. But I, I can't sort of place which season it belongs to. But... Uh... The weird thing about um, you know they make that they make that change to to an hour, to our episodes, but then for the final season, I don't know that they even knew, I don't know that they even knew it was the final season at the time. They go back to the the old format, uh, and the final season, I'm sure that there there'll be people who sort of can evaluate the you know this season's the best season, that season's the best season, but se- season five does have some of the you know does have some really famous episodes in including the one you mentioned nightmare at 20,000 feet the um well, that was richard matheson i think yes it was and um it was it was uh, uh, a william shatner episode of course before we we say goodbye to the listeners it's this season that happened to be showing the first time i i saw twilight zone and i think they showed two episodes i vaguely think they showed one called Probe 7 Over and Out, which was sort of about a crash-landed spaceship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has Richard Basehart in, although I hadn't seen Voyage at that time. But I think I was aware that he was somebody. But the episode I really remember from that those two episodes was one called Night Call. This Alva Keen lives alone in the outskirts of London Flats, a tiny rural community in Maine. Keen's existence has been that of lying in her bed or sitting in a wheelchair reading books, listening to a radio, eating, napping, taking medication, and waiting for something different to happen. Hello? I'm sorry. I didn't hear. The thunder. It's basically the, the idea that, uh, like a telephone line, 
falls down in a graveyard and this lady starts getting um, messages, um, phone calls. <laughs> that was much more horror supernatural. So it perhaps wasn't a typical um, Twilight Zone episode or at least uh, it certainly wasn't science fiction-y, but it was probably appealed to me as a growing horror fan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, st- and stuck with me so much that I can remember you know, 35 years later or more. Yeah. Uh, there were some creepy ones. Uh, it, what your description of that episode reminds me of the episode of the the little girl. I think this was a videotaped episode. Mm-hmm. The little girl has a toy phone and she speaks to her that's dead that. grandmother on it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It probably is um, almost a, a remake of an earlier episode. But if you see the remake first, then it works just as well. It's um, and looking at this night call was another Richard Matheson one. So. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think when, you know, uh, uh, if for some uh, bizarre reason uh, folks listening have never watched much of it, um, first of all, that's hard to believe. But second of all, uh, what's fun about it is that it's eminently, uh, um, well, rewatchable, but uh, that's not the word I'm looking for. Like a binge watch. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's mm-hmm. imminently bingeable. But also, for people who who love old TV, is it super fun uh, to find all of the uh, actors, you know, that come through? Um, you know, Clint Eastwood, uh, Robert Redford, um, uh, Charles Bronson, just to name a few. And, of course, all the other uh, people that would later go on to probably have a, a regular TV series or just our faces, you know, names, you know, and that's another really fun thing about it. Uh, it looks like it looks like, um, according to Wikipedia, that Night Call was originally supposed to be transmitted the around the time that JFK was um, assassinated. Uh, okay. but, it, but although it wasn't shown in the end until. February 64, so whether it got bumped down the schedule. I'm not doing an advert for the Blu-ray that I've just bought. I'm not getting any commission. But um, one of the things that made me decide to buy the whole thing, the whole pack, because mm-hmm. all five seasons in one pack in, on Blu-ray, was that I think it was like, certainly in the UK, it was um, about $50 um, um for the whole thing, and there, were, I think there were 150 something episodes, so that's like silly money. I mean, we're paying 50 cents or whatever, or 50p an episode. It's it, it was just like, well, okay, I kind of really have to, you know, really oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you one thing I mean, if uh, if there are a lot of episodes that have commentaries from either a director or a writer or an actor that was involved. I'd really love to see, to see those. Certainly, um, the, the season one um, disc that I started watching, I think every single episode um, had a comment, either a commentary or or some extra, or those, those uh, weird adverts that uh, Rod Serling had recorded, um, sort of related to next week's episode. Uh, so there's so much, so many extras. It's if you're watching the episode, then you're watching the commentary. You're getting two different. You know, it's like having two different things, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you know that Rod Serling spent the latter years of his life right here where I live? In your house? That's my house. Not quite. He had a <laughs> house, uh, a very, very nice house on the lake. Yeah. 
and his widow remained there for many years. There were two reasons. One, that it was a beautiful area where Rod Serling could relax um, and get away from Hollywood. And also, uh, he uh, taught writing here. Um, so at a little famous, uh, semi-famous uh, uh, place of learning that specialized in uh, uh, TV movies and radio. Um, so he was a, a teacher here and lived here and uh, enjoyed this area. I, I don't know. Um, and again, I'm sure it's easily find out more. Next time when we talk about Night Gallery, we will uh, have this information for your listeners. Uh, as to what he did between um, Twilight Zone and and Night Gallery, because Twilight Zone finished in June '64, and Night Gallery didn't really start getting going until '69, I think. Um, um, I know one that. thing: he he wrote uh, at least one treatment or the final treatment of Planet of the Apes. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and there you go, Planet of the Apes, famous twist ending that was very Twilight Zony. Uh, also, he was doing a lot of narration. Yeah, uh, he used to be the narrator for all the Jacques Cousteau specials, mm. and uh, so he was doing a ton of voice work. Um, next time, listeners, we will we'll talk a bit more about that, but we will also move on to Night Gallery. So um, we'll get our pens and paper and an art and we'll see if we can draw you up a, a beautiful article which we can sort of work some sort of sinister story into um, exactly <laughs> with a twist ending yes <laughs> well Toppy thank you very much for talking to me about Twilight Zone as you know we found when we, you know when you're talking about whole series it's, it's, it, it, you're just sort of picking moments that are particularly personal that uh, you liked um, that there was so much more to explore oh yeah um, worth watching folks yes definitely yep. well, we'll be back we'll be back bye 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 Dokey. So I hope you enjoyed that. We do have one more article for you. I wasn't sure whether I would share it with you this time or in some future or some future episode where I maybe share further articles that I did with Toppy. But uh, anyway, this one seems to fit um, with the previous article. Now, this next article is about Night Gallery. And this appeared in Round the Archives, episode 50B on the 23rd of July 2020. It's probably fair to say that um, whilst Toppy is more of a Twilight Zone fan, I'm probably more of a Night Gallery fan, although I like both series. But I did say that when we did Twilight Zone, that we must definitely do a Night Gallery episode. And uh, what comes up next is exactly that. Have a listen.
Hello, Round the Archives people. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti, from the Shy Life Podcast. I'm here again with Toppy Smelly. Hi, Toppy. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. I'm doing good. Hey, all the kind folks out there in Round the Archives. <laughs> well, um, last time we were on the show together, we did a little bit of a chat about Twilight Zone, and mm-hmm. I did, mm, yeah, and I did promise that we would uh, cover Night Gallery, which is the sort of <laughs> another anthology series that Bob Serling did a few years down the line, um, which I, I'm a particular fan of. Um, so, so yeah, that's what that's what we're going to do with a particular slant, which I'll come to in a minute, but. Uh, um, Toppy, I, I asked you this last time with Twilight Zone, but um, uh, what, do you remember when you I, mem- you... I remember when you said that when you first saw Twilight Zone, but um, do you remember a particular time when you watched Night Gallery, or how, how was it sort of repeated? Um, oh, okay, well, Night Gallery, um, we can say right off the bat, never got the kind mm-hmm. of fame that Twilight Zone did, and so it never went into syndication possibly not at all Mm. and if it did it was very limited Um, and so it was quite a revelation to me when I even discovered Mm. there was such a thing I think I found out in 76, 77 Mm. maybe even as late as 78 and it it was because somehow it was on TV I know that Uh, it may have been late night programming Mm. Um, but uh, it came on, and I went, "What? Wh- what's this? <laughs> what? Where? When? How?" That was. That's. I knew nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was on a funny time for me as well. I saw it in the eighties, but it was um, sort of again late night TV, and we're talking about it could be two o'clock in the morning, and, and I, I was at the stage where I would set my video for maybe horror films or whatever I I, I would see, but. You know, if I was going to school the next day, I wasn't going to stay up late, so I set the video for things, and then I, I must have caught the odd episode. And, um, of course, there wasn't yeah. things like Wikipedia and, and all that then, yeah. so I don't know yeah. how much I knew about it or had heard it. I, I doubt very little. I'd have heard of Twilight Zone, but... Uh, um, uh, here's just something funny, you know, when I saw it. First of all, uh, it was color, mm. and that was weird because Twilight Zone is, you know, forever in our minds is in black and white. Yeah. And then Rod Serling had 19, 1970s <laughs> hair. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't get over that. Also, you know, he looked quite a bit older. Mm. It was, it was, you know, weird. Yeah. It was a funny thing to stumble across. I'll, I'll give the audience a few facts. There was a pilot movie uh, which was shown on November the 8th, 1969. But the actual, the first season didn't start until December the 16th, 1970. And then it ran until, uh, for three seasons, until uh, May the 27th, 1973. So, and I was I was born a, a few months after that. So I would Aww. never, I would have never have seen, it, it, I would never have seen it at the time. But actually, I don't know how much it was shown in the UK, sort of, in the 70s i only know about the 80s repeats but uh, uh i know that i think with the first two seasons it was billed as being a 50 minute program but i think there were often two stories per episode and the third season was just 25 minutes so there was generally just um like just the one story although i believe one of the problems that uh, or the disagreements between rod serling and 
Um, I think it was the the producer. Um, I've lost his name. Oh, Jack Jack Laird. Uh, that I think some sometimes episodes had little sort of almost humorous sketches. They were still supernatural. Um, and they were done as, a, as as dramas. There was no laughter track or anything, but they would often be um, just just a funny little quirky bit between. Sure. Uh, and I think that caused some sort of, you know, um, what something didn't really like. That perhaps he thought it ch- sort of changed, shifted the the mood too much. Uh, There's one thing that just a general fact that I know about is that perhaps maybe at the beginning. Rod Serling thought, you know, I can recapture some of what we had. Mm. But very quick, very quickly, he learned, you know, nope, it's the same old TV BS <laughs> with producers not knowing, you know, anything about anything. And they changed things and they're in control. Rod Serling was not, did not have mm. nearly the control he did with. Twilight Zone, and he very quickly said to himself, "Yeah, you know, I wish I could be done with this right now. And consequently, he didn't write all that many scripts. And he really, for, for, for Night Gallery, we can really say he was a figurehead. Mm. Um, He was a, you know, there was Rod Serling introducing Night Gallery as he used to do twilight zone and really that was kind of the limit uh of his involvement because the um uh the, the format of each episode is that it starts and returnings in like this blackened sort of art gallery where there's a, f- a few paint- paintings in the background but there's one that he's going to talk about and and that's one of the strong things i think some of the the, the artwork in themselves um have got quite a following i think i've seen websites where it's just collected or they've collected all of the night gallery um paintings together um and um you know there were fans who have kind of managed to see to sit you know those some of those some of those paintings still exist to this day um and, and fans have tracked them down and sort of posing with 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 photo, photo uh, with the actual original artwork from uh, nearly 50 years ago or yeah 50 slightly over 50 years ago from the for the pilot episode but uh, yeah that's true uh uh, for me, the uh, conceit of having these portraits that sort of drew you into a story. They weren't all portraits. I shouldn't say portraits, but paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they would draw you. In. And that really, that that had a nice, creepy little factor. Um, because sometimes you, would, you wouldn't find out the connection with the visual mm-hmm. un- until later on. I'll tell you the one episode that used it in my opinion, the most effectively was a very early episode with Roddy McDowell. And the story itself concerned a painting where Roddy McDowell was living. Mm. And the painting was used in in the gallery opening. And that was the most, one of the most effective uses. Now, naturally, they couldn't keep having stories where, <laughs> you know, somebody had a painting. But yeah. In that particular case with the Roddy McDowell story, which um, was a story where he he kills someone, buries them, and every time he looks at a painting, I believe, of the house where he's living, uh, this ghostly figure, you can see it like 
It's coming out of the grave. The next mm-hmm. time he looks at the painting, the ghostly figure is closer to the house. The next yes. time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I remember that one. That's one of it's either in the pilot or it's a very early season one one. Yeah. But um, the, the 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 thing that perhaps. Um, I mean, uh, one of the things I, I, I love about Night Gallery is that it is so 70s and it's quite garish in places. And I'm going to pick through some of the, the, the actual different seasons in, in no, a little I, bit. I, I don't know if you've explained this on Around the Archives before, but I, I think it's worthy uh, to to define what you just said, garish. But I know I, I, you and I have talked about it, but mm. I know that one of your peculiar fancies... Uh, is early 70s and it's because of the clothing and the makeup and stuff is that i mean that's yeah right. and the color often seems to be exaggerated I mean, I, I mean think of some of those well i particularly like like italian like horror movies of the 70s because you know you see the blood and it looks more like paint and it's but it's kind of almost stylized it's yeah it's, it's just to sort of yeah, it's, it, and a night gallery does have a lot of that. It's very, a lot of the stories aren't very subtle, which I I, I love. Right, <laughs> um, right. I, and I'll come to one or two of the ones I particularly like because they are sort of very, yeah, uh, you know, very rich, very very broad. Um, yeah. So that's. Um, yeah, oh, go ahead. But, but the, the the title sequence, I I actually like the t- the visuals of the title sequence. Uh, the first couple of seasons have sort of all these strange faces and they're all distorted, and the third season, which I, I will talk about quite a lot because uh, I, I never really see, watched a lot of season three episodes. And but in preparation for this article, I pretty much watched the whole of the third season. So mm-hmm. they're ones I want to talk to you about because I think they're ones that people don't know so much about. And there are the series is kind of I think. Um, the good things that are said about Night Gallery tend to be about the first and second season. The third season, uh, I, I, from what I've seen, I, I I rate quite a lot of the stories, and they're quite interesting, but I'll, I'll, I will come back to that. But the music is certainly, in comparison to Twilight Zone, um, it, it's not really a tune. It's very screechy and sort of like the stabby bits from Psycho. Um, the, the first and second season have one particular theme and the third season has a different one. And, and I don't mind the first and second season theme, but the third season one is even, is, is more of the same, but, but exaggerated even you, I, I find myself turning the volume down. <laughs> way oh too, no. Way oh too, no. Way <laughs> just to get yeah. up, just, just it's sort of, you know, if you're watching an episode at eleven o'clock at night, um, sometimes it's the music that <laughs> you think, oh my, you're going to wake, I'm going to, and it's not even started yet, and it's going to wake the house on. Mm-hmm. But, um, the only thing I can add to what you just said is that that it certainly wasn't memorable enough for mm-hmm. me to mm-hmm. recall it in any way. Now, of course, Twilight Zone. Just became part of of our consciousness, our the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And anytime you were with friends and they did something strange, if you went do 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 do, nobody had to explain what that meant. That's yeah. how iconic Twilight Zone was. And you know, I, it's not surprising that Night Gallery could could never get to that point. But I I remember nothing. It was completely unremarkable. It's quite, I, I, yeah, yeah, it's sort of quite electronic and sort of 
Stop, stop, stop. That's interesting because that was an era where electronic yeah. music was was being used and yeah, I mean, being introduced more. It might just be too avant-garde. I mean, it's not, it, it is composed by, you know, people who are um, Billy Goldenberg... Um, composed for the original pilot theme and background music and actually i don't think the background music in the episode i think that's totally fine it's more the theme that i i'm less sort of inspired by Mm -hmm. um but um yeah there was also a composer called uh gil melee he he uh, and it mentions that in Wikipedia that uh, he he was used he was known for um, sort of using electronic instruments quite early on. So it was an experimental theme. It just may not be that you know you're not going to yeah. play it. You're not going to play it at your wedding, for instance. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> um, Paul. Is your recollection that they did uh, the the electronic music was part of the opening, but did they use it for the incidental music? Um, I'm not. I think they probably did, but it's not. If, if it is, it's more if it fits with the. Um, I mean, and and you know, the the music sort of does fit the type of thing. It's not like I mean, I've seen a few shows recently where I've watched. I, I was reviewing um, a series around the archives a couple of months ago, and and it wasn't supposed to be like a sitcom or or, or a comedy show, but it was supposed to be like almost like a soap opera or a drama. And the th- the music that was used, I was watching it thinking, it doesn't really go with it. And I guess the music does sort of go with the night gallery it, and i've seen a lot of people kind of who remember it for the first time around um looking at sort of comments on youtube and stuff people say oh this really scared me and and yeah it's certainly especially with the visuals it is a scary title sequence it's just not as memorable as, uh, by any means as the twilight zone and but i kind of forget of course it was only when i came to look at twilight zone again before we reviewed it last time is is that that twilight zone theme music isn't used from season one it kind of comes in season two or season three it so you know that really did stake its mark to the point where people sort of um would th- presume that it always been the theme um yeah it sort of grew organically mm. there there was something of it right from the beginning mm. but they 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 expanded it Did it yeah um, yeah, they, for the actual, the full piece that we know as the theme. Yeah. yeah, it took a while to get to that, to being that um, fully formed. But uh, going back to Night Gallery, now, there's a few things that I want to talk about, the things that were successful about it to start with, that were in its early seasons. So the pilot episode was uh, featured the directorial debut of Steven Spielberg. Most uh, famously, yes. Mm, and it also contained one of the last acting performances by Joan Crawford. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, the whole way through the series, the special guests are top notch, and even in the third season, you know, you've got Leonard Nimoy, you've got um, um, Dean Stockwell, you've got um, Vincent Price, and a lot of these yeah. people had been. Had, it wasn't their first. It was perhaps their second or third. In the same way as a lot of the guests kept coming back to Twilight Zone, they kept right. coming back to this as well. So, and one uh, one of the reasons that they were able to get these guests was truly because Rod Serling was attached to it, to the project. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing, um, 
It says here, Night Gallery was initially part of a rotating anthology or wheel series called Four in One, and that's uh, the same series. So, for, I mean, McLeod was one of the shows um, in, in that. Oh, uh, see, I never knew that. It was part of what they used to call the Sunday Night Movie Mystery mm, Movie. Mm, uh, and, uh, Columbo was part of that. McLeod. Um, McMillan and Wife. McMillan and Wife. So uh, that's really where it started. Yeah, I, I presume it's the same wheel series because they only mentioned McLeod, but my understanding was that, and I guess obviously some series is um, apparently origi- originally, or perhaps it was seasonal, but um, um, apparently it rotated four separate shows. McLeod, SFX, which was San Francisco International Airport, The Psychiatri- Psychiatrist and Night Gallery, and Night Gallery and McLeod, were the only ones to move to to have sort of renewed for second series. So I don't know if McMillan and Wife was a bit, perhaps a little bit later, and maybe um, Columbo. Well, Columbo started in the late the late sixties. So yeah, I can only say McMillan and Life. Yes. Uh, McMillan yeah. and Wife was it was definitely after Columbo yeah. and yes. yeah. McLeod. 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 <laughs> I have got I have got a DVD of McLeod somewhere. Uh, maybe that's uh, maybe that's one I need to cover at some point later stage. Yeah, uh, uh, but McLeod's boss had a particular voice, <laughs> and in every episode, you know, he was yelling after McLeod. McLeod. <laughs> right. Anyways, now also um, so some of the episodes that Rod Serling did write include. Camera Obscura, which was based on a short story by Basil Cooper, The Caterpillar, uh, based on a short story by Oscar Cook, The Class of 99, uh, Cool Air, based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. And there were a number of other ones, but um, the one that the series is particularly known for, um, because it was actually nominated for an Emmy Award in its first season for an episode called They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. Uh, Uh, Yes, I've... I, I don't believe I've ever seen it, but I have certainly mm. read about it and 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 heard about it. And it also had um, uh, another nomination in the second season for an episode called Pickman's Model. H.P. Lovecraft, known to the aficionados of the occult, demonology, witchcraft, as a master storyteller, is responsible for our first selection in this museum of the frequently morbid. To you connoisseurs of the black arts, you'll probably recognize it. It's a painting that tells the story of a young artist who recruits his models from odd places. And the models are very odd indeed. The painter's name, incidentally, is Pickman. And where else would you see a story like this except in the Night Gallery? And Rod, Rod Serling received an Edgar Allan Poe Award for writing the pilot episode. So, so this isn't a series that was kind of a damp squib you know, or considered a damp script from the start. I mean, I don't think it's a damp script. I think, you know, having seen the third season episodes recently, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe it's not as good by the third season. Yeah. But um, uh, I, I I only know that Rod Serling sort of like pulled back and said, mm-hmm. okay, I, uh, I'll do what I have to do contractually. But yeah. <laughs> and so, so he was less and less involved, uh, particularly third season. There is a there is a, um, a slightly confusing other extra thing about there was a, a short lived supernatural series in 1972 called The Sixth Sense, yeah, uh, and that was incorporated into 
syndicated versions of the series. So sometimes um, you'd get an episode of The Sixth Sense as an episode of of, of Night Gallery. Or, um, I don't know. I've not seen any versions where they've stuck the title. Right. Stuck. I'm not quite sure how that worked, but um, yeah. I, I think um, the only the only thing I know about that, Paul, is it's very peculiar, very odd. Apparently that the two series were at least owned by the same studio, at least. Maybe had the same producers. I don't know. Gary Collins was in it. Good Lord. And um, apparently it was strictly a decision that was made. Okay, so we've got these weird length episodes of Night Gallery. How are we going to package this? And they said, I know, we've got this stupid thing with Gary Collins called The Sixth Sense. It's sort of like creepy. It's sort of like spooky, but not really. But let's... <laughs> and so they they just put it all together. And I think you'll find episodes of that on YouTube, I believe. Um, to start with in the UK, when I tried to buy Night Gallery, I had to buy Region 1 American releases. I think you now can buy it European region. Um, but I also bought the first season like off iTunes. And I think there was at least one episode of six cents as a sort of bonus, uh, feature, but, uh, yeah. um, yeah, just, just so you know, I, I sort of like, I want Gary Collins and, and that's <laughs> purely because of his career, which finished basically, he, you know, didn't really go, far as far as acting was and then he became a talk show host <laughs> and that's what he that's what he did he became a talk show host <laughs> of a particularly bad talk show oh, <laughs> um no, and, and i suppose the other reason um yeah that they needed extra ma material to bulk out for syndication was that there were only ever 43 episodes of night gallery um True. although there were obviously more stories in 43 because of each a lot of the episode, early episodes having more than one story but uh, um yeah i must look into i must look more into the sixth sense later but uh, um the the weird thing that i remember about the repeats that we had on late night tv in the uk was that they would like tear whole episodes apart or you'd sometimes i believe like if they had five minutes after a movie before perhaps the news was coming on or something else sometimes you those comedy those sort of comedy sequences that uh, I, I mentioned um I, they just show one of those like for five minutes just to bulk out a bit of space at one o'clock in the morning so i really didn't get to see night gallery in the way it was intended uh, until i bought the dvds but, uh, yeah, that's a, that's really interesting the way they they packaged that. Uh, it was it was kind of a mess. <laughs> now uh, we're going to look at um, we, won't, we won't sort of hover for ages, but I just want to kind of um, go through some of the first season episodes more partly to look at the sort of uh, the people who who were sort of showing up for it. Um, that they're. I mean, in in one of the very early episodes of season one, we had Larry Hagman, yeah. um, and uh, Diane Keaton um, wow. was, in, was in an episode called "Room with a View," um, and the, the plot of that: a crafty old invalid plans a fiendish revenge against his faithless faithless wife with the unwitting aid of his nurse, um, and Diane Keaton played, played the nurse. Mm. Um, and I think I think one of the reasons I like um, Night Gallery is that 
it is more horror, thriller, supernatural. Um, and although I like sci-fi and I, you know, but I, I also like those other things just as much. And um, although I'm sure Twilight Zone did, you know, it wasn't always sci-fi. There are, there, it there was are, a mix. Yeah, it was a mix. And but um, I agree. Night Gallery was more, it was mm, more horror. Mm, Absolutely. Now there's an episode called the little black, black, the little black bag in season one that, which has Burgess Meredith. And I was watching an episode season three with uh, Burgess Meredith in. So he's definitely one of the people who, who came back for more. Um, and, um, ha uh, there's an episode called certain shadows on the wall, which I think it's about sisters. Uh, it's an, an ailing woman dies under the care of her sinister brother, but her accusing shadow remains indelibly cast on the parlor wall. And, mm. uh, the special guests in that one include two of my very favorites. And I'm sure of their favorites of yours too, Agnes Moorhead and Grayson Hall. From Dark oh my God. Paul, <laughs> if there's if I watch nothing else in the next three days, I'm watching that episode. Of course, Agnes Moorhead from Bewitched. Um, Grace and all. Oh my God. The the next episode after that has Tom Bosley in. Um, <laughs> we have Phyllis Diller. John oh Ast- my God. John Astin, um, and I've seen again. I saw J- John Astin in a season three episode. Um, now, uh, just so folks know, uh, just to connect him, uh, he, he played, um, what's his face? <laughs> in, in, oh, in, yeah, in the Adams family. The Adams family, family yeah. yes. Um, now, they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar, which is uh, the one that got nominated, um, has uh, Diane Baker, William Wyndham, um, John Randolph, and Bert Convene. Um, wow. Bert Convey. That's a 70s name that I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow, Paul. Bert Convey. And um, the following episode, The Last Laurel, has Jack Cassidy and Martin Beswick oh. in. Jack now, Cassidy. I reckon, wow. <laughs> I reckon, like, because the good thing is the, the site I'm looking on um, has the sort of, I guess they were the screenshots off, off the actual episodes, but they... Um, that they, 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 I can recognize. I recognize the faces even if I don't know the names. But uh, now the the first the first season was a shorter season. It it only had uh, like six episodes, but say so I think there were two two stories. Now what that tells me is that you know back in in these days when we had our our three major networks. Mm. There was a date, a time, a September, where they launched their new season. Yes. And that was a big, big, big deal. But round about April, May, I'm not exactly sure which, they would do a soft launch of their, God, they had a name for it, Paul. Mm Mm-hmm. Mid-season, that's what it was called, mid-season replacements. And that tells me that possibly Night Gallery was a mid-season replacement, which means it didn't debut yeah. in September. It debuted more like February, March, something. Yeah, it was, it was very late. It was December, but which is a weird time to start. You wouldn't think you'd start anything around Christmas. But, um, yeah, the, 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 the second season, that was 22 episodes. Uh, so that was... A, that was They'd obviously, 
that was probably the season where it was most like a normal um, yeah that was series. the full season um and then the first the first story of um the second season has uh clint howard in it <gasps> oh he was everywhere clint <laughs> yeah yeah he was in which star trek episode was he in he well, was well corbinite Maneuver. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Now, uh, but for folks who don't know, Clint Howard is famously Ron Howard, the famous director, also Opie and Andy Griffith. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's it's his brother, and uh, while Ron Howard became a kind of very well known, uh, Clint Howard remained always a, a background character actor, but uh, in a thousand million. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, the um, one of the other episodes in season two, the hand of Borgus Weems has Ray Milland in. Now, Ray Milland was had a very interesting career in the seventies. Um, oh, did he ever? Yeah, I, I, I saw him in a latish seventies Italian sort of giallo um, only a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I know he did a lot of European films and a lot of really schlocky films. Yes. Well. Okay. Yes, he did. We we won't go into it, but um, uh, he, he needed. Well, he was one of those actors that kind of was broke towards the end of his life, and therefore, there was a period where he would accept just about anything that was offered. Oh dear. Uh, one of the other episodes in season two has uh, "Death in the Family" has Desi Arnaz Jr. in. Oh my God. <laughs> I never heard of that one. Yeah, and the the there's an episode, the class of um, the the class of ninety nine, which is a Rod Serling one, and uh, that the plot of that is a, a graduating class of the future takes a particularly revealing final exam. Actually, there's a there's a, a, a movie of 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 that title. That's an episode with uh, Vincent Price. I think that's oh, that's. Okay. Uh, uh, I think I, I, I recall that one. Um, the actress Moorhead obviously liked doing Night Gallery because she is um, in a an, an episode called Witch's Feast. Um, ah, perfect. Uh, with Ruth uh, Boozy? Buzzy? Buzzy. Uh-huh. Ruth Buzzy? You've got to be kidding. Yeah, I don't think I know who oh she is. Oh, my God. She was on Laughing. She's known basically uh, as a comedic actress. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ruth Buzzy for yes. heaven's sakes, <laughs> and and a name that's come up before when we've done articles. Uh, Victor Bueno was in an episode called Satisfaction Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the following episode since Aunt Ada came to stay has James Farantino, Michelle Lee, oh. uh, Jeanette Nolan, and Jonathan Harris from Lost. No Space. kidding. Mm-hmm. Lost in Space is Jonathan Harris. There is no doubt about it, folks. If you love these old stars that, you know, particularly inhabited TV in this era, there is just sheer joy to be had with Night Gallery, with, uh, with these yeah. stars. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do want to talk a bit about season three, but I will just quickly give you an idea of some of the other people. I won't stop to, to tell you um, episode names, but um, for the rest of season two, we have Adam West. Uh, uh-huh. We have Patrick O'Neill. Um, we have, and I'm sure there's other names that uh, I, you would know that I, I don't. Um, Pat Boone. Uh, Lee Pat Eric, Boone. Yeah. 
Oh God, he was a Leif. recording artist. Yes, yeah, Leif Erikson, uh, um, David McCall- David McCallum. In an Yay! Of course, of yeah. course, he was in this. Uh, the Phantom Farmhouse and David Carradine, Orson <gasps> Welles, Orson Welles. Orson oh Welles my God! In an episode called "Silent Snow, Secret Snow," uh, Leslie Nielsen. Uh, I think he was in more than one. I believe he's in an episode where he's like the Phantom of the Opera, because um, I saw he, him credited, that he, um, and you couldn't see that it was him. But there's another episode where you can see it's him. So I guess maybe he did them both at the same time. But uh, wow. um, who else have we got? Uh, I can cut this. Out. I can cut the bits out. I'm just going to see That's if I can. Nice. See. Yeah. Uh, Patty Duke. Why do I know that name? Mm. Well, she she was um, uh, made her name on on Broadway in the Miracle Worker, playing the uh, deaf dumb child. Huh. Uh, Patty Duke went on to have a movie career, a couple, well, maybe one TV series. Yeah. Uh, Patty Duke um, uh, on 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 Matinee Minutia, we did "You'll Like My Mother." Patty Duke mm-hmm. was in that. Okay. Um, yeah. Um. We've also got uh, Cesar Romero. Cesar Romero. Cesar Romero, yeah. Uh, He was the Joker on Batman. John Carradine. Oh, Victor Bueno again. I wonder if, I think um, some of these ones are are short, like those, because I know the second season is um, sort of criticised by by, by Rod himself um, for these sort of little little sketches. But Victor Bueno, Mm -hmm. there's a picture here of Victor Bueno as as a sort of... A fat vampire. The episode's uh, called a, Mid- a Midnight Visit to the Neighborhood Blood Bank. Uh, yeah, folks, you'd have to be able to visualize Victor Bourne to, to know why it would be humorous to have him portray a vampire. Uh, there's, an, there's another episode yeah. here with another another appearance by John Astin, and he looks like he's dressed up like a hippie. Oh. Um, Joanna Pettit. I recognize her name. Oh, um, I don't. Uh, hmm. We've mentioned his name before, and I can never pronounce it. Um, Rene Aubergenois. Oh, dear Lord! Why can't we ever remember how to pronounce this <laughs> actor's name, Rene Aubergenois? That ah, right, might yeah. that might be close. Yes, he was in an episode called Camera Obscura with Ross Martin, and I've seen <gasps> Ross, I've seen Ross Martin in a, uh, who was in the Wild Wild West, of course, which we've covered together, and Ross Martin was in a season three episode. So again, another example of um, people who have uh, uh, sort of come back for uh, <laughs> this. Honest, will make you yeah, honestly, this. folks, the the guest stars alone are reason enough to tune into this thing. But um, uh, all these famous names, and yet the the best. Well, actually, the best I'll keep to last. But uh, I've just noticed there's an episode called Lagoda's Head, which has Patrick McNee. <gasps> uh, but um, the yes, the 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 name that you're you're waiting to hear from me um, for, from this this uh, season, the big star of one episode is Zaza Gabor. <laughs> yes, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, they're literally, and because this is the um, the, the longest season, there literally are so, so many guest stars, that, and, and more that I can see that I just haven't got time to mention because I do want to. Uh, oh, Carol Lindley, Nick would be pleased. Carol Lindley's in an episode. About uh, well, Bill, uh, uh, and, Carol Lindley. Now, uh, was she she was in Poseidon Adventure. That's right. Yes. And okay. Bill, yeah. Bill Bixby's in the same episode. <gasps> yeah. 
Bill Bixby <laughs> was in Night Gallery. He was, and um, oh and, well, God. actually, he's another one who I saw in season three as well. So, uh, <gasps> yeah, so he's in it more than once. But uh, yeah, there literally are, and and really, and John Saxon, he's in an episode, and he was a kind of movie star as well. Oh, <laughs> he was all over the place in the seventies. What a working actor he was. He was in every. He was all over movies. TV. Oh my god! Uh, whereas Twilight Zone often has people who were very early on in their their careers, um, like Martin Lando. I saw an episode, and 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 that was sort of, yeah, that was a very, that was one quite an early role for him. Um, whereas the people who are in Night Gallery, they are you know really famous people and they probably would have been very famous people at the, um uh or, or certainly people who'd been seen quite a lot on tv back in the 60s who who, who was sort of um well known but uh, so before we finish i just want to mention as it's a it's a, it's a shorter season the third season but it, yeah it, um, i really want to hear what you have to say about this because i know nothing about season three and first of all can you just tell me was it a full season or did it get canceled how many do you know how many episodes well it says it, yeah it says there's 15 uh, okay were, so yeah so i think it was it, short yeah it started it, in september but it finished early it was probably cancelled, and that's why there's only fifteen. What What do you know about this? I, I know nothing. Um, well, it, because I, I hadn't sat and watched this as a season, I, I and there's not so many episodes. I managed to get through it pretty much over the last couple of days. But the, the first episode starts with a, a Vincent Price episode, um, and he's a sorcerer who's who hires a translator to divine the meaning of an ancient Arabic manuscript that has some grisly connection with his twin brother's death. It's got Bill Bixby in, so Ooh, you know. There you go. Um, also, question, Paul. Mm. Uh, I, I think I understood you to say that this third season, all episodes had been reduced to half an hour. Is that That's correct? Right. Yeah, that okay. is right. Yeah, um, but no. The first episode, I, I was, I was at first sort of, you know, keen because Bill Bixby, Vincent Price, but it, it probably story-wise wasn't. So I found myself a bit losing, losing the 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 part the path of what was that was going on a bit. But the following episode, the girl with the hungry eyes, um, had Jan- James Farantino and Joanna Pettit and and John John Astin, and that was sort of um, well. It, the plot is a photographer hires a mysterious model whose eyes burn with a seductive yet frightening glow, and mm-hmm. um, and and that that was quite good. And some of the effects were quite good for the. She was sort of. A bit of this model was sort of a vampire type character who was bewitching people who looked at her poster. I did mm. see a review that kind of exposed some of the sort of, you know, well, how, you know, how come she picked this this guy of all the people in the world? How does she, and, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Night Gallery, you're not, you're not trying to analyze every last bit out of it. It's, it's, it, it, it was, it was an enjoy, enjoyable episode, um, mm-hmm. and. Um, the, the, some of the other episodes, there was an episode with Raymond Massey and Mickey Rooney, um, which mm. was about a sort of, well, he was a gangster and he did a, he sort of did a deal with, don't know if it was the devil or who it was, but uh, um, he, he sort of is getting into a lot of trouble and this figure offers to um, save him from the problems, but then he finds himself a sort of exhibit as uh, in this sort of museum of notorious villains um uh and and yeah it, it had a bit of a 
a typical night gallery twist, which I, I, I sort of like. like. Um, um, other episodes that are particularly were notable, there was a weird episode which had Roger Davis from also from Dark Shadows. Um, oh, my God. I got to see that. <laughs> um, I have to see this. And, and that was about a bungling inventor and his forgetful wife pulled their ineptitude for an experiment in, in immortality. Um, that was a teleplay by Rod um, Sterling, but it was a, a based on a, 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 a story. There was a very weird one, and this was like at the end of an episode, just the last few minutes, called Smile, Please. Uh, it has Césaire de Nova, who I don't know that name at no, all. No, I don't, I don't uh, recognise it. But the, there's a girl... Um, and. Uh, played by Lindsay Wagner. Um, And um, it it really is Lindsay Wagner's playing a photographer who's been invited to to come down to the the cellar to take a picture of a real live vampire. And of course, the guy who brings her down turns out to be the real live vampire. And I mean, this literally takes place over about three minutes. It is, um, I mean, it it reminds me of, I mean, I I went for a stage myself of writing like 100 word stories. And really, 100 word stories is basically a punt a punchline to a twist uh and 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 smile please is an example of a, you've barely been introduced to what the story's about and then it finishes with a twist but i think they're fun i, I think bet they are you know until you told me this i had no idea they had things that short mm. they usually were either at the end of an episode or in the longer episodes perhaps between the two stories mm. um there's another episode with Ross Martin called The Other Way Out. Um, there's an episode called Fright Night uh, hmm. with with um, Stuart Whitman and Barbara Anderson from Ironside. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a kind of um, weird one about this box. Um, so the, the, they're a couple and they inherit a farmhouse and there's a trunk and they're, t- they're, they're told never to move it, but it keeps moving itself and i think one of the things i really like about uh, night gallery sometimes when they show you the monster or they show you the 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 thing it's very much there in front of you you see everything it's not like it's not hidden in shadow and you know it's very bold it's very sort of in your face and i kind of i kind of like that well let me ask you about that um you say you liked it now would you say that these special makeup effects were good or, or were they like, oh my God, that like Lost in Space laughable? No, <laughs> I think they're a little bit above Lost in Space, but yeah. but they're kind of very of their time. And um, But I like the real effects. Um, a lot of modern stuff, you know, I would rather they did makeup work than did CGI. Oh, uh, and I, and, yeah, and I, and I really, you know, I really like that. Um, other episodes in season three: Dean Dean Stockwell, Sally Field. Oh um, God, really? Yeah, there's an episode called "Death on a Barge" with Leslie Warren, um, which is about a vampire. Um, oh, they like their vampires. They do like vampires. Yeah, there's one with Leonard Nimoy to do with a cat, which gets a bit confusing, but uh, he gets to <laughs> he gets to overact quite a lot in that one. And there's another Burgess Meredith one. Uh, Speaking of cats, <coughs> yes, yes, uh, Paul. Um, I don't know if you you collected any information, but I'm interested if you remember 
any other writers. And particularly, I guess what I really want to ask is Richard Matheson wrote uh, some great things for Twilight Zone. And in this early 70s area, Richard Matheson was just pumping out great scripts. Did, do you know if he did anything for Night Gallery? There's uh, a one in season two called The Big Surprise by Richard Matheson. Ah, um, and I knew yeah, he had to be in there somewhere. Yeah, certainly. But, and then there's another one called The Funeral, which is another vampire one. So, yeah, he was involved, whether he was directly involved or whether, um, you know, it was, they, they were sort of, um, you know, wh- whether he came in specially to write it, whether it was something he'd been working on or, because um, I know he was certainly very heavily involved in Twilight Zone. But uh, anyway, well, I think that's about all we've got time for. Um, thank you, Toppy, for talking about Night Gallery with me. Yeah, this was a nice series to reflect about, uh, in particular, just all these crazy great guest stars. <laughs> yeah, if you don't keep right, we've got to head off. We'll be back again soon. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Lisa. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Well, listeners, that is all we've got time for. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of these articles, maybe for the first time, and I hope it'll encourage you to go back and listen to Round the Archives as a complete show with all the other guests and all the articles they do discussing all manner of TV shows. As I said earlier, around this time, Round the Archives celebrates its 60th episode, and they've been going only a little while shorter than, um, well, the Charlotte podcast, so... It's sort of around the time of their fifth anniversary. And uh, I think it's fair to say that I was partially responsible for inspiring Lisa and Andrew to start doing Round the Archives in the first place because they appeared on an early episode of the Charlotte podcast talking about TV and things. And it gave them the idea to do something where they could talk about TV themselves. Anyway, um, I may well share some of the later articles that Toppy and I did for... um, other episodes in um, 2020. Off the top of my head, we did Fantasy Island. Um, Toppy did an article about the magicians. Um, he did that one solo. We also did an article about I Love Lucy together. And of course, we hope to do further articles in future episodes. Anyway, it is time to go. I can hear the theme music. So uh, I will say goodbye and thanks again to Andrew and Lisa uh, for allowing me to. Uh, republish these articles and I hope that maybe some of my listeners who don't already listen to Round the Archives may uh, decide that they might enjoy doing so so yes you really should listen to Round the Archives okay uh, you take care and I'll speak to you again soon bye bye for now bye now This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com. Oh dear, (laughs) what's going on now? Oh, it's the Shy Life Podcast. Let's go. I have a voice. I have a voice. 
You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net. Before we go, I ought to tell you about the other articles on the episodes uh, that uh, I shared with you today. So episode 44 also has an article by Warren about Tomorrow's World. Martin talks about Quatermass in the Pit. Yes, that is Martin Holmes, who I talk about music with and who does many various podcasts himself. Lisa and Andrew also talk about Heidi High in episode 44. In episode 45, Tim talks about Here Comes the Double Deckers. Martin talks about Hill Street Blues. And Warren does a tribute to Terry Jones, whilst Andrew and Lisa talk about medieval lives. Meanwhile, in episode 48, we celebrate the work of Tim Book Taylor, and Martin talks about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And in 50B, Martin looks at the final episode of Quatermass in the Pit. Warren talks about Nairn across Britain, and um, Andrew and Lisa discuss Adam Bennett's Talking Heads series. So quite a wide variety of different shows that are being discussed on those episodes and across the show in general. So, yeah, do go and explore it. Um, It's a real family affair. Lots of us who do our own shows come together uh, to do articles around the archives. So it really is a project that we all really enjoy working on. Okay, bye for now. Bye now. was a wonderful episode, don't you, Topic? I sure do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Four hundred and 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 four